Of the Crash Chords podcast. I, of course, am Storm Gutten. I'm John. I'm Steve. And I want to start these podcasts like once in a while. Just once in a oh, while. Oh, like you get to intro first? Yeah, every. Just, just. It's been just, a while, like a hundred episodes. Yeah. I don't like, know if that's you, accurate. You just, you just think you're, you're the one. I mean, if Who anyone knows would the know. podcast. I was going to say, if anyone knows, it yeah. would be you. You just do it. You don't even. Because Steve points at you. He's like, still going. <laughs> Steve could point at me every once in a while. Even though we talked over him, he still ranting. He still goes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. You rant. I, mean, I, I, I rant. <laughs> you ignore and go. you, you got to let me get it out in the beginning. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of ranting today. So. Oh, well. Yeah, i got to get warmed up. Out of your system? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Um, before we get into this week's album, which is my pick, um, I want to tout a little bit Mr. Joseph Bertolozzi, um, whose album release party I got to moderate... Um, a few weeks ago now as you're hearing this and uh, I hadn't brought it up sooner because I just I wanted to take some time to think about it and think about what I want to say but I'm, I'm truly thankful that he gave me the opportunity to do that and I enjoyed doing it and it was a great educational piece on the record which if I haven't talked about Tower Music on here before which I'm pretty confident I have it's um, a collection of percussive sounds that Joe collected on the Eiffel Tower and then composed music using the notes and sounds he created on the Eiffel Tower. And the ult- penultimate goal of this project is to eventually someday play with many other musicians the Eiffel Tower live in concert. Yeah, it was is, a nice little mu- mutual interest project for both me and you, considering yeah. that I was originally touting like bridge music back in 09, the first, yeah. his first attempt at actually using a structure to compose out of, yeah. like, tapping on the Mid-Hudson Bridge, which is up there between Poughkeepsie, New York. And uh, I actually walked across that bridge, and that's how I discovered Joseph Bertolozzi back in 2009, is because I found the little installation there where you can just press buttons and hear what he made on the bridge, because he actually had a live performance in front of everyone else there, which yeah. was pretty neat. And now people get to hear it whenever they walk across the bridge. So it was nice to hear when you informed me that he was doing a, a secondary project using a much more well-known structure than the mid Bridge. And there is work to possibly put an installation like that in the Eiffel Tower as well. But and to have fun. a live performance as well. Yeah. And so the album release was fun, and he did um, a lecture series almost at the beginning talking about the individual sounds that he recorded and then the each piece track by track, talking a little bit about each track. And then there was a Q&A portion, which I moderated, which was a blast. Steve came along with uh, podcast favorite mention, James, who's a, a good friend of Steve's and ours. And uh, it was exciting to be in that environment. You know, he, Joe is really smart and knows what he's talking about. And it was genuinely intriguing to just listen to him talk about this project. And we can all experience that through the live stream, which is posted on. Uh, so you can go to LiveAmp, which is a website that does live streams. Waystation has its own page. And if you search Joseph Bertolozzi Tower Music Release Party, the live stream will come up and you can watch it from beginning to end. It has the little bit of the lecture talking about the, the, the music itself, the Q&A that I did, the actual questions asked. and The uh, recording engineer was there, the filmographer was there. Yep, and yeah. so it was it was a pretty cool thing. You know, I it was also the first time I had not had stage fright in, behind a microphone in front of a group of people. As you were the MC. Well, and I think Storm it was... again, MC. <laughs> I think it was because, though, that this event was about music. Like, I've sort of hosted other things at the Waystation and I've gotten pretty nervous but this because 
I feel natural in a music environment. You were in your well, element. Yeah. He, yeah. You also it's, had already interviewed him Joseph before. That's so true. you knew a little something about the project. Well, that's that's not even it. I mean, he's had conversations with people before they go on stage as well. But this one was like, this is right up his alley. I mean, you do autographs. You are yeah. used to talking on one-on-one situations. Sure. You might be the next Lipton. I don't know. It's like a carried away. Inside the musician's studio. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> just throwing it out there. Okay, thanks, John. I like that. Super yeah. helpful. I kind of like that. You know, why yeah. not? Yeah. I don't I'm, do I'm a good, beaming right I don't now, do a good James Lipton impression. You don't have to do though. a James Lipton impression. No, but I want right. to for this moment because I feel like it would be the period at the end of the sentence for the comedy bit, but I don't do a good one. So. I could do a Steve Tyler if you want to pretend no, to interview Steve no, Tyler. No. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Positive. I'm just saying. Erdolozzi. It's, it's it's, Bridge music. It can be done. Tower music. What's next? <laughs> I mean, it's not bad cadence-wise, for sure. No, um, no, no. That's but um, but yeah. So if you're listening, Joe, thanks again. Um, I had a blast doing it. Um, and uh, come back on autographs anytime, or come on this show, um, which I did chat with him a bit, and he is interested. So maybe sometime in the future. Last last little note, he was telling me a lot about the logistics required for actually doing a live performance at the Eiffel Tower. Oh, the red tape. Oh, yeah. The red tape involved not just, like, dealing with the government to, you know, actually use the space and have it all prepped for people to arrive at, but then to just to perform it, you would need, like, 80 to 90 musicians scattered mm-hmm. throughout all of the places on the Eiffel Tower where he initially made the recordings, yeah. and he'd have to work it out. They'd have to know what to do. They'd have to be professional percussionists just yeah. to know exactly where that note will fall. Uh <laughs> Best wishes, Joe. Best wishes. Well, if if he ever does accomplish this task to get the okay to do it, I will push hard for us to be invited. I don't oh. know that we'll get flown out there, but if we can get there, we'd probably be invited. I'll take a boat. Um, you'll take a boat. Okay. Well, yeah, go. we'll see you in a couple of months. Up the scent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but let's uh, pivot to the album I picked for this week. So if you listened last week, then you already know what that album is. But for those who are just tuning in, the album is Junk by M83. Um, I first discovered M83 in an unlikely place. Um, a song by them that I really like called Midnight City was featured in a movie called Warm Bodies, which was a comedy about a zombie sort of becoming human and like what it was like. It took all the zombie tropes and threw, threw a light on them, and it was very funny. It was a good movie. Rob Corddry was in it. Um, I can't remember the lead's name, but um, but it was good. It was based on a young adult novel. They changed it up a bit, but it was a fun movie that was goofy and silly, and the zombie for half the movie has an inner monologue because he can't actually talk, and so he's thinking about all these things. And So at some point in the movie, I think when he's with the girl that he's falling for, they put on an old vinyl record and from the past because everything's <laughs> shut down because it's the apocalypse, and it's that song um, by M83. And it was really catchy. It really sucked me in. I ended up picking up that record, um, that that song was featured on and really digging it. You know, I think the whole record I didn't love, but a good 80% of it I did. And then there were other songs that didn't get me as much. But, you know, not super familiar with the band, I saw that they had a new record and I heard the first single from it, Do It, Try It, which happens to be the first track that we'll get to. I thought, oh, this is interesting and it's different from Midnight City. It's not quite the same. It's not just so obviously catchy. It's mm-hmm. just, it has a bit of a different structure. So I figure, let's do this album. Let's bring a more pop-centric kind of techno electronic band to the forefront of the, this podcast since I don't usually bring instrumental written electronic bands to the show. Apparently really good at, at soundtracks. Yeah. Uh, I gotta admit you kind of sold me in the movie right there. Um, and <laughs> I hope I can do the same here because what me and you with the crossovers today I also discovered M83 in a pretty strange place. The movie's Stranger Than Fiction mm. uh, with Will Farrell. 
only one track. Only one track. They didn't do, yeah. I think, the whole entire set. It was a, a montage yeah, of soundtracks. Yeah, it was the same, so I same for Warm Bodies. Spoon made an appearance in that soundtrack, but there was one track right at the crux of this film. Let's see if I can sell the film on you, too. Stranger Than Fiction, Will Farrell plays a, a fictional character. He's a fictional character, but he's only discovering gradually that he's a fictional character in the narrator, who is the narrator of the film and the novel that she's trying to write. He's a character in her novel, but she hasn't figured out what she's going to do with the novel yet. She hasn't figured out whether she's going to kill off the character or not. And then this fictional character, Will Farrell, starts having an existential crisis as a result. How do you live knowing that it, that you're going to be written off as he once he discovers that he's but a character? It's a pretty fascinating premise. And right at that moment, when it gets starts getting pretty existential, there is this track that plays called In Church. That's all it's called, In Church. And it's a seven-minute long instrumental that starts off very slow, very acoustic, and I wondered why I love this so much, and I just went and found out that it was M83, and I had not heard anything by M83 before, so this was pretty fantastic, and I was wondering whether it held up, because I had seen the movie probably back in like 2008, maybe when it came out, right. and then just recently I was wondering, ooh, what was that track? And I checked it out, In Church, find it on YouTube, because it it holds up. For a seven-minute long instrumental, it is very moody. It's exactly the, the kind of track that you want for that pivotal, climactic moment, when you're not exactly sure where everything is going to go, whether he'll live, whether he'll die, whether he'll just succumb to it all. To madness, <laughs> you know. Well, it's interesting that they both ha we both found them through single individual moments on soundtracks because they didn't write whole soundtracks. Because they do that too. Mm -hmm. I believe they did the whole soundtrack for the movie Oblivion, starring Tom Cruise. That's right. Which, also discovered after the fact. Right. Surprised me. It was a good soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, I like a lot of the stuff from the soundtrack, and I, I, I think that the stuff. This is the first band that I've really kind of gotten interested in on both a lyrical kind of pop version and an instrumental level. A lot of bands like I like either lyrics or instrumentals. They mix it up and I tend to enjoy 90 to 95% of it most, you know, a lot of the time, which sounds redundant, but anyway, I digress. Um, so the album we are doing today as I mentioned is Junk. Um, it just came out this year and uh, you know, I think that for me, the reason I chose it is because I wanted a band that I didn't have a ton of experience with. I've been picking bands that I'm either familiar with or I know really well, and we'll probably get back to that more later this year because both Red Hot Chili Peppers and Gorillaz are coming out with an album this year, but I wanted to do another thing that I'm not super familiar with. No, that's why I made the comparison. We both know them from as singles, as a band that does singles, but obviously we want to explore them on the album scale right here but and, a little, and a little oh. I have to put my two cents in mm -hmm. I know absolutely nothing about them going into this <laughs> I did, it's I've just seen a meme all these love movies fest. I never really picked out the musician from the music so so it was like oh surprise I did other things you liked well, the musician, at least the, the person at the heart of it all, is Anthony Gonzalez. Uh, altogether, they're a French electronic music band, uh, but they're currently based in Los Angeles. There are several other members currently. Uh, Jordan Lawler, uh, Loic Morin, Kayla Sinclair, and Joe Berry. Apologies if I am mispronouncing those names. But uh, it seems to be that Anthony Gonzalez is, like, the brain behind it all. He's the one that is most commonly mentioned. Um, I find it interesting. I, it seems that he's French, but he has clearly a Spanish name. But, hey, it's Europe. <laughs> so people right. travel, right? That's true. All right. So I was wondering exactly how he came about with this album. Because just before we even begin, this album, oh, it's quite nostalgic. Yeah. It dips back to a time... Uh, very entrenched in the 80s, and for any listeners of this podcast, they know that we've had a lot of experience, maybe too much experience, with 80s music. Only because it seems to be this big thing right now. God, ages ago, John brought up this 30-year rule, the concept of 
nostalgia that that 30 years later people get nostalgic for a certain time period and so mm -hmm. they start writing things in that style just to kind of bring it back and i love being proven right with it i yeah, love well, I, i'm loving it was, this it's, it's you actually brought it, it up i believe up. back in episode 141 when we had uh, uh devin jackson mullen of anxious kids make good people and he brought nocturne by wild nothing and you brought it up then and it has come up oh so many times since yeah. but it's always concerning the 80s because as of yet we are not out of the teens so <laughs> we won't be talking about the 90s uh probably until 2020 if that 30-year rule holds up but yeah this uh, I, I have weird reaction when it comes to, to 80s things I think you'll also realize that from our discussions on one hand I think that a lot of really interesting musical motifs came about in the 80s uh, most of what we know about the synthesizer or at least the modern usage of the synthesizer because it was really like championed in the 60s and 70s that's when they were doing really innovative things with it but the our current perception of how this the synthesizer is used in pop music I believe really came about in the 1980s but little things have changed because of course the synthesizer has grown more complex and more sounds became possible from the 80s on so usually when you hear that 80s synthesizer you're thinking about some very specific instruments some very specific models that were out and it's it seems to be this 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 gravitas that whenever you hear it you just think of a decade and and the nostalgia comes rushing back for better or for worse because when everyone's doing it it could get a little annoying but then again uh, if it was interesting, why not develop it? And that's what I guess we're constantly trying to decipher, whether people are developing the music or whether they're not. Well, the question is, what is Anthony Gonzalez doing here? I never uh, took him for being kind of a an, an 80s interested... At least I would never knew that from the soundtracks that right. he'd done. I would never know that that was like his era of choice. I considered him pretty much on the fringe uh, of, of modern music. But here's a couple of reactions just to give you some some idea. Uh, Consequence of Sound wrote an article, and so did Pitchfork on this album. And uh, Pitchfork actually went into a little bit of an interview with Anthony Gonzalez. So here's just a couple of reactions. First, the one from Consequence of Sound. The subtitle of this article is actually called Wacky and Colorful, but also filled with empty calories. He goes on to say, Each work of art is goofy, positive, and aesthetically driven by both outer space and 1980s television. Anthony Gonzalez has been upfront about wanting to achieve the same effect as various sitcom themes from the Reagan era, so much that the font on the album cover is identical to the title cards of Punky Brewster. Um, so he had intentions concerning this album junk. It wasn't going to be just like, you know, a casual throwback, an album yeah. with 80s motifs. It's a thorough style study project. Um, that makes me a little concerned. Uh, we'll get into our reactions in the first track in a minute, but I wanted to get a little bit in-depth in here and find out why. And I know that this is re-journalism. I'm just quoting from these articles because they're actually written articles and they do get to the heart of the matter. Pitchfork went further. This is actually how the article begins. Anthony Gonzalez did not care for the new Star Wars movie. I really loved the first 15 minutes, but then it started to look like a modern action film, he says, his French accent worn with disappointment. His grievances are substantial. On returning heroes Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher, too old. On Darth Vader disciple Kylo Ren, just ridiculous. According to the 35-year-old mastermind behind M83, The Force Awakens relied too heavily on computer-generated tricks instead of the original trilogy's more tangible and soulful modes and miniatures. It didn't live up to his childhood memories of the space saga. Maybe it never had a chance. I feel like we're losing this culture of making things. Everything is digital, even in music, Gonzalez tells me, sounding twice his age. He often longingly dreams of what it would have been like if he had started his career in the 1970s or 80s. There were so many new horizons back then, so many ways to come up with a really strong and original identity. Nowadays, 
Everything has already been done before. I truly believe that. It's impossible to come up with something new. Wow, that's 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 pretty powerful words to paint what we're going to be looking at. Actually. That's Bond junk. Those words yeah. right there. I uh, I had to start off with that because it's... Look, I don't want to color anyone's lens here. Of course, you should be going into this album open-minded. But uh, I, I, I feel like that... It was necessary for me to know where the artist was coming from in this particular case because yeah. I did go into the album open-minded and I came up with all those things I said before. It was like, well, it's just a throwback to the 80s and I didn't know how to take it. But this is coming from a philosophy. Right. Well, and it's not necessarily a throwback if he's pretty much putting himself in the 80s and creating. Exactly. So, it, but we can discuss that as we go. Why don't we jump into the album now? Right. Um, Track one, Do It, Try It. <laughs> which is one of the singles from the record. Um, the intro is piano and vocal paired, you know, very kind of upbeat, tapped piano. It's and kind of a, well, it's kind of a cheap piano yeah. sound. This is where you start getting those... Uh, tinny, it's a little bit tinny. I'm, I'm not going to quite say like 80s motifs just yet, and certainly this this podcast is going to wear on you when we constantly say it. Just just, just assume it. Just yeah. assume it in most instances. Um, there's other little things here. A very cheap sounding like synth bass with these very short plucks that have a kind of, you know, reverby air to it. Everything has that, uh, except for a few like synth effects that will actually come in later in the album that sound completely 100% clean, as if they were just all direct input and they had no ambient space whatsoever. All electronic, all digital, all fake. But in this case, I do like these light little touches. I like what they're adding to the initial piano work. Now, the piano work itself is not really stellar. It's just a really solid groove to start the album. What it goes into in the chorus, though, felt very abrupt, very, very high-reaching to go from that low groove to the high energy so quickly. I'm going to say because this was the first time that it was done, uh, I didn't dislike it uh, yeah. like you guys did. I thought... Uh, oh, no, right, I'm, right, on right, your, right. I'm on your side, I'm Steve. My side. I think that the way the kind of vocals were peppered, and it was just saying, do it. Try it. Like yeah. very, it was very. It was effective. It was effective and an effect. It was not meant to be like sung. It meant to add another instrumentation to the track. It's actually something uh, that, in addition to the piano strut itself, also reminded me of Ben Fold. Yeah. Because the vocals, you know, they kind of have that that sort of high tenor, yeah. occasionally dipping into falsetto territory that Ben Folds also has uh, tends to do. Not to mention the title of the track itself, "Do It, Try It," really reminded me of "Do It Anyway." Right. Uh, just just the concept. But, but in this case, he he's referring, of course. I imagine to just try a new thing, right. try like a new just sound, a new, a new, a new style, which maybe directly conflicts with his philosophy because he doesn't believe that that's possible. So right. who knows? But but the transition that that John's talking about that felt harsh to him, it was it is a sudden shift. I will agree with that. It did seem kind of out of left field. You get like a blaring synth, and it feels like it's crackling at the seams. Mm-hmm. And then when the chorus work comes in, you kind of have these high singing, almost chorusy kind of things, mm-hmm. like chorus of people singing. It it, it it gives this kind of grandness that I thought, while it jumped to it, was really interesting based on how the song started. And I thought it was an interesting shift because then when it comes out of the chorus, I feel it blends more naturally back into the verse and well, the synth is more built out. That's because yeah. the, the post-chorus does a lot to borrow from the chorus and integrate it into the verse. Sure. That uh, that part of do it, try it, do it, try it, do it, that like part B of the chorus, because it really it does have a distinct shift from the initial a dance on repeat, a trance on a hard beat, a dance on repeat, a trance on a hard beat. That, that was high energy, get yeah. you going. It integrates the bass. It integrates the percussion lines into it. That does a lot more pluck to what was going on, a lot more 
like energy and 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 I guess like chutzpah to what was going on earlier. <laughs> I actually, think plucky, to integrate it. It's calling it plucky kind of is a double entendre in this yeah. case because there is that that you know the, that's the, why I wanted to the go usage of of like little plucking. <laughs> Very little, punny. But yeah, it's it's it is a plucky. I don't know how to describe it. It's sprightly. Fun. The track does have sprightly this kind of word. energy that, like, is re- even though the style of this single when I heard it was not reminiscent of Midnight City, the energy and the kind of etherealness and, of it was reminiscent. Yeah, and banking off of that feeling, it makes me think that this really is the. This is his ode, I think, to, as he cited in that article, in that interview, um, his ode to a time period when he did think that more things were on the horizon, more yeah. things were possible, I suppose, within music. Again, this is just the artist's perception, but the first verse there that listen to the sound of a new tomorrow, take over my dreams, walk into the feeling. I mean, and then it goes back into, it retreats into the into the, the part that John uh, read, a dance on a repeat, a trance on a hard beat, a dance on a repeat, a trance on a hard beat, almost like they're in direct conflict with one another, a new tomorrow, new beginnings, and then something that is rote. Yeah, it's I think... It's a little depressing. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately what I like about this track is the kind of way it builds and then when we get past this 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 post chorus and verse and the chorus again aside from the one hiccup yeah when it goes back into the chorus itself with these new elements it's so it's such a nicer transition it feels so connected and then we get to the bridge so I don't necessarily agree that this parts better. Me and Steve are of the mind that both were good and they both suited the song. But yeah, mm-hmm. the song does take an odd turn because the vocals start to get a little distorted, the bridge, the instrumentation changes a bit, and like, now there's there's a vocalizer where it's literally the the, vo- the vocals feel like a sample. They get warped and get a little deeper and yep. get a little higher, and it, it does this <laughs> kind of weird, almost like you're being pulled through like a It was a wormhole. almost like he was auto-tuned. It was amazing. <laughs> right? There you go. I do wow. a good impression of That's, auto-tune. No, no editing, folks. No, no editing. No Editing. It's all Stormageddon for you. Yeah, but, um, but you know, I thought, but while I didn't like it, I did think it was bizarre a little bit. Well, it's led by that really, like, deadened piano work that's going on that kind of throws me for a little bit of a loop. I'm not I'm not 100% on, on board with what the piano's doing right here. I will say that, I don't know, maybe this is just looking at it through the lens of, of, of a pianist, but I, I felt that he was... In the beginning, I liked it. I liked the strut thing. I have a little bit of a ragtime background, so I feel like there was a syncopation thing there that was starting to go into something I liked, but it didn't really develop. It was really just a loop, and it kind of is just the ongoing strut for the track. I had wanted that to do something else. And in many ways, apart from that initial surge into the chorus, where everything with beat drops, you know, and you have the synth blaring in your face, a lot of this this track doesn't really expand. It instead takes the... Instead retreats. Mm-hmm. Like from the the middle of the song on you know when it comes so thin it's only just keeping time by the measure alone it's silent for beats on end you know and then it goes into the part which is very like abstract with the sound bites that you mentioned and the mm-hmm. little, little abstract mantras that like you were saying before with heal me up back me down turn me on i'm alone heal me up back me down turn me on i'm alone try it all do it, try it, do it, you know, kind of like the whole do it anyway concept back in the, the Ben Folds track. But it's 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 abstract and in many ways it doesn't really hit a climax. Its yeah. climax is is ambiguous. It feels like it kind of unravels. And it's it's smooth. That's that's the whole thing. The track itself is very smooth, except for my one hiccup, which I'm gonna stand by and no not everybody really does. But that besides that one hiccup, the track itself is very nice and steady and easy going, but it's this unruffled nature of the track itself that makes it non-impactful for me. The fact that it is so easy going down, 
I wanted whiskey and I got water in, in a lot of ways here. It does have a fakeness to it, but as we kind of unearthed, that is very much intentional. And I think it's in the way that like every little synth sound, it, it makes an appearance that it's from the 80s and it's not gonna even it even back in the 80s it wasn't gonna fool anyone you know that it was like out of the mainstream necessarily um and well, it's, it's strange that he references that but yet i still do like it i like that brassy synth sound maybe because today i don't hear it so much anymore and it's in this way that he does have a tendency of maybe transferring his nostalgia over to me well and i would argue also at the that the song while john feels like it doesn't really impact him i feel like it does impact me for the same reasons i think because it gets a little bizarre in the middle and then ends pretty strong and the way the song kind of does still build on itself even though it does it in bizarre ways i feel like it's a cohesive intro track that ultimately is designed to pick you up and pull you in and i got a sense of that i didn't feel like it pushed me away or kind of didn't engage me so i was kind of on yeah, board that's where it is it just flowed around me in this well, case and i get that and that's how i felt when i first heard it as a single but when i listened to it in the context of the album and re-listened to it i felt more engaged by it i think i think there was something there that i couldn't catch initially that i definitely got later so from from here we go to track two go exclamation point featuring my lan who's all over this record. She's the female vocalist who I think keep, works with him constantly. She's been featured in other tracks on previous records too, I believe. And you could have just said it as go instead of having That's that. That's true. It didn't mean you need that. But what we get here is an oddball of an introduction, at least I thought, because I assumed this was going to be an R&B track. It did. the way it, it comes in. The very, very early moments of the track feel very late 80s, early 90s R&B, including a very predictable sax moment where we get a little <laughs> saxophone. Uh, and the this, moaning saxophone, yeah. like 12 a.m., just, yeah. you know, roaming the night. But it's also got the long synth yeah. as the backdrop. It's got the long pitch bends on behind everything else that's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's a much mellower track. Um, yeah. It actually continues with, I guess, the trend of the how I felt like the last track didn't really climax so much. It yeah. felt like it was retreating toward the end, and now we're retreating into, into track two. Um... The, the one thing that was pretty interesting, though, was once the melody really starts going, there's these vocal echoes, the, these little bits of repetition here, despite the repetition, I think it's actually, to its credit, it's, it's quite catchy. You, I, you, you, meet me, 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 at this station, station, can't, 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 get used, used, used to patience, patience, wish time, this time, could just be a bit shortened, shortened, B B B between you, you, us, six million seasons, it's like... It's like she's breaking. Yeah, it's a little bit glitchy. I, I like it not just because it's an interesting combination of of lyrics. I like the way she's putting emphasis on things, but also her vocals are stellar. I'm, I'm really enjoying her voice, especially with the backdrop of what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's very complimentary for what she's trying to say and how she's saying it and all of the inflection that's going on right there. And then another element comes in when she starts doing her countdown. It goes eight, seven, six, and then we get a really interesting guitar. Well, yeah, the guitar is teased a bit in the beginning right after the intro, but you really get to hear it shine at this point. It's this kind of strummy electric guitar that sounds almost fake. And kind of echoey. Echoey. Even, yeah. It alludes a little bit to funk, like not necessarily funk music, but it feels kind of funky, just because it's like that wacka 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 kind of, <laughs> kind of motion, but it sounds tinnier, it sounds more... Uh, synthesized essentially. I gotta admit the chorus here definitely makes for a good dance backdrop. Yeah. Um, 
but then it just strips down so much for those verses where mm -hmm. it goes back to that that mellowness it's it's really quite a, a volume disparity um and then i thought the the final chorus structure actually at at two minutes 51 seconds much later in the song which actually introduces a guitar solo over it I thought that that particular move was a little bit cliche. Well, I mean that bridge, bridge chorus thing where like there's that bridge moment and the chorus comes in, but it's hollower and there's like yeah. finger snapping. I agree, it did feel a little strange to pare it down at that moment, but I thought it was a good lead into the really fun guitar solo that we got that followed it. Now the guitar solo wasn't amazing; it wasn't stellar by any stretch, but it did fit what was, it was going playful, on. And it was playful, and it fit the song well. It eh. brought back. In a wider sense, the guitar that was lost in the the chorus. The, when it, the chorus it showed like in, an evolution to the guitar too, I felt like the chorus lead-in is great with the countdown with the guitar element. I like what they were going. I but didn't when, see. I don't know. I don't know why. The I, chorus itself, though, is where I have the issue. There's a lot going on, and it's another one of those moments. I feel like they did a little too much. I think there's it's too busy. I mean, there are and things. Hard, it's hard to get the elements I'm enjoying to be picked out between everything else that's going on. That's fair. I, I guess maybe I'm having a little trouble now, and I was having trouble on the initial listen too, just trying to figure out whether cliched was the goal, you know? Because there are so many things that just sound-wise, texture-wise, feel like, you know, they had been done before 30 years ago, therefore I, I start perceiving the entire album that way. But it's like all the way down to everything, even the structure, even like the the uh, the solo lead-ins, everything just seems so you know it, you could see it a mile away, and in 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 some ways there's some satiation to that, mm -hmm. um, which could be a, a kind of goal in itself. There's that, that's there's a it's an art form for sure. Well, sure. they're owning it. What's going on right here is M83 is owning this style. They're doing a great job. It's not the the be all end all epic moment you're going to experience, but they're they're being the example of what to do in this situation to really make a solid track through and through. I'm enjoying all the little aspects that are showing up with the exception of too much chorus. I, I don't know. It's just always, <laughs> for me, it feels like it's going to be a running theme of there's too much in the chorus. I had perhaps ho hoped that this track would be a little more spastic considering the, 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 the glitchy vocals. And even the mantra of that gotta run, gotta run, gotta run and make it or die. You know, it is with between that and, and the glitchy vocals, which in the second verse, I loved, I loved, I fell, I fell, ran away, ran away, ran away, ran away. Gotta say, gotta say, gotta say, gotta say, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done without you. I loved, I love, I fell, I fell, ran away, ran away, ran away. Gotta say, gotta say, I'm coming, I'm coming for you. Well, yeah. it's, it's like, I don't it's, know, I feel like the music could be bringing this out more. Yeah, I okay, I definitely agree with that. But with how awesome the vocals are, how awesome the yeah, lyrics are, that, like how solid I that like, is. Yeah, the music performance wise, is not, it mixed really well. Yeah, yeah, the music is not bad by any uh, by any stretch. It's and just, they're related to it's each really other. It's really the thing. Well, we're just at the tip of the iceberg here, as far as you know what they could be doing with the music and what he chooses to do with the music. The very last thing that I'll note here at the tail end of the song was uh, the, the a kind of outro here, a playful synth outro that sort of follows up that guitar solo. But what clean I and simple, like someone just bought the instrument back in 1987 and they're just having fun with it. But what I like also is the guitar solo doesn't completely disappear in this outro. It does come back and still play with the outro. It's not as in the forefront as it was when it was Oh, soloing. I'm talking about the last few notes after the guitar solo oh, okay. is completely done. <laughs> but I'm talking about the actual whole outro, not the last few notes. Like when yeah. that synth starts to come back up and it's building to that outro, the guitar solo sticks around. A lot of times with guitar solos, they just end, but here or fade. Here, it really did play all its way to the end so you got to those final notes. And I liked that kind of connectivity 
towards the end. Oh. All, right. For- <laughs> All right. We have some halfway agreement. And from here we go to Walkway Blues, which... This features Jordan Lawler, who we mentioned earlier is a member of the band, but he's actually singing here. We get, in this introduction, percussion, which is a bit of a change. This is the first yeah. time that it's not like a long, sweeping synth line accompanied. But it is a well, synth it, percussion. It's, it's strange. This is also a very mellow track, and mm-hmm. I don't want to pull away from that, but it does have a very nice strut that goes along it's, to it. And the layering in the, in the beginning is really nice. The bass line builds into these two harmonized saxophones. I believe there's two. Could be a separate instrument. And then finally the vocals. So the building, is it's, it's pretty nice. It's, it's tasteful. Yeah, and it's odd because I thought I was hearing a xylophone. I thought it was that kind of a percussion strike, a, a percussion attack going on right there. But mm. maybe a synthesized one. It was a little bit of a different texture. Almost definitely a synthesized one. Well, it's a different texture. It's a yeah. different level of what this synth machine is doing right now. Later and we get kind of a, a guitar-esque, uh, synth-esque thing as well. Yeah, and then the, those saxophones. It's, I I like I like this this build. I did think that... Once we get the, uh, I, I guess you could call it the hook for the piece, the the instrumental, the crux of the piece, yeah, yeah. that um, and in this case, I'm not referring to the to the lyrics themselves, but I guess the instrumentation in the background during that hook, that's something that started to wear on me because later in the track they start doing it like upwards of 16 times, and in and especially this is from like the middle of the track towards the end, and I don't know, I, I maybe it had just lost me by that point. There's a couple of things that show up throughout this track that really do bother me. And one is the echo background modulation that's going on. It's 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 like be odd. So go high, go low, go mid, and play around with that. Seems scattered. But the way you scatter something like that is pretty much the same every single time. You hit those beats on the right points. There's also that, that sweeping rise. It's almost... Almost a standard introduction to the next part. Kind yeah. of an idea that shows up several times. Exactly. These are these are starting to get to be like standard cues. And I'm not enjoying standard cues in music. Maybe it did kind of serve to distract me from the vocals which I otherwise thought were or the lyrics which I otherwise thought were pretty neat. Uh, taking a foreign flight looking for signs of life when you flashed upon my screen. Testing the atmosphere, your silhouette appears, and I know I'm not alone. But empty haze is all that remains. I'm lost on the sidewalk, just calling your name. I'm lost on the sidewalk, calling your name. I can't stand to see you walking away. I sleep in the concrete. Everything's changed. You walked off with someone new anyway. I want to say didn't, I didn't get any of this in the first time. Yeah, know. right. I would say that the lyrics here are matching more with the tone of the track, which is what you were kind of complaining about a little bit in the previous track. Oh, here. but I didn't even get these lyrics like in as I didn't pick up on them in the as same way listening. that like there's there's it's a little bit impossible to not pick up some of the lyrics. Ironically enough, in track two, because with all of that stuttering, right, the then it, it it highlights them. But here he's just kind of you know crooning in his own way. It's mellow. Um, but I but I would say here with this track, the mellowness and like the emotional of it really kind of pulled me in. Even though I hear what John's saying, for me, the mood he sets has got me so enveloped that I don't really care that I've heard it before. Yeah, it's but even no no such thing is too much of a good thing, you know. And for me here, I'm just in invested in this good thing, even if it's a good thing that sounds like a lot of other good things. Yeah, but it felt like the music itself was kind of covering up the thing at the background, which actually we only hear really toward the end of the track, or maybe it was there uh, throughout. I'm not entirely sure because the music seemed to be just blurring it, and that was these ocean waves. And it comes out of the, the, the line, I can't replace your ethereal waves. 
I sleep on the concrete and dream of days. And eventually we do start hearing these these waves <sighs> or like, yeah. The sh- they crash towards also the Also sounds the like that along with yeah. wind in the background amidst this very echoey piano. And that's at the tail end. And right before that, we get another little like guitar work built into it that feels like it's just playing on the same melody that was already in existence. It's not really changing anything. It's not adding much to it. The There's a... The chorus goes through a fairly standard texture change in the rising nature of what it does. I mean, it's it's sort of like slapping just layers of paint, layers of paint on on the room you've lived in your whole life. It doesn't feel like much anything is changing, but the coloration of what we're getting, and that's starting to really bother me on this track. I mean, it's walkway blues. It's a nice saunter. It it feels a little melodramatic in how melodic it is. I like that, but it just goes on and doesn't really expand upon that theme and I wanted that and and for me I think it has to do with something that came up back when we were uh, discussing Vega International Night School by Neon Indian back in episode 177 uh, because that he also as an artist he tried to bring in you know 80s motifs here and there and it made me think like there is a middle ground that I think sometimes disturbs me most like if you're going to if you're going to pay homage, then go for it. Go for it with all of your, your might. Either try something new or go all the way back. If you're somewhere in the middle where you're making a little bit of references, I think there is a reaction that we would say, oh, well, that's that's the perfect middle ground, right? Therefore, you're referencing, but you're not entirely living in a certain environment. But then as a consequence of that, isn't the issue that you're not committing 100%? I don't know. It was something that I started considering around the third track of this uh, especially before I knew that this was his goal and actually still even after I know that this is his goal. Three tracks in and if if that's where he wants to live, I want to see more of it and we do get it as we walk further into the album. Let's see what we get in track four. Bibi the Dog also featuring My Lan. Oh god, her voice is just dripping sex in the verses. I'm in love with her vocals that are going on here. And I love the fact that I don't understand them because I don't want to understand them. The inflection she's putting in them is just so perfect. So the vocals are in French and uh, then the choruses, I believe, are in English. And Yeah. The, so it does seem like the, the verses are very sexualized. Um, there could be a bias because John is overly romanticizing the French aspect who knows <laughs> well but there is a, there's also uh, the, the, the female aspect and yeah, the fact no, that she's too. kind of you and know she, the way but her pronunciation really does I mean you can be clipped in any language you want to be trust me I've heard it all over the place but here like she's really elongating her vowels she's, she's elongating the tail ends on on her words to really draw out S's, to draw out L's, to draw out R's, and it's it's just a lot of impact in those words. Meanwhile, the backdrop is a little bit warbly. You got the bass tone kind of modulating, and it it contorts itself, it distorts itself. It makes everything sound just a little bit goofy. Not to mention, you have so many damn sound bites just flying in from right and from the left. It's 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 a strange track so far, um, and it almost seems to conflict, especially by the time of the chorus. It seems to conflict with the kind of hyper-sexualized vocals. Um, well, no, matter, no matter what they're saying, they sound it. Then I will agree with John on that point. Because her, later, her vocals actually become completely absent. And then you just have the chorus sounding somewhat uplifting. And it, it's kind of just a generic club song. And I don't mean that in like, oh, you're, you're making love on the dance floor. It just sounds very plain. It sounds like something they would throw in between the tracks that would be a little bit more 
you know, sexual in order to maybe get people grinding or whatever. It, it is not even anywhere near close to that. This I is like the last club song of the night when there's only like a dozen people just, who are just plastered and left over, maybe even starting to breach into hungover already, but they won't go home. They're, they're waiting for someone. They're waiting for the one, of course, but they're never going to arrive because at best they've just had their heart set on some creep or some floozy and they'll, they'll take them. They'll take them because they'll do because they just need someone to make them feel alive. That's what this song feels like to me. That's very specific. It's a sad club song. I just, I don't know. I didn't I didn't overthink it that much, but I feel like we're in the well, business of overthinking. I think that I will <laughs> no, agree. No, I got more things. So do I. But I will agree with Steve, though, structurally on the song that I was getting tired, whereas he didn't love what was in the courses. I didn't love more that there were so many of them. The chorus repeats so many times in this track, and... I don't need that. Like, once or twice, fine. But, it's certainly but it's, by the end of the song that I started building that kind of narrative in my head because it's like the the voice had left and, and was not there, I think, from the middle of the track to the end, I believe. Pretty much. Yeah. It was just repeated choruses and chorus bridge well, things. There's that, there's that breakdown, and when the breakdown occurs, it shows that the percussion, the beat itself, is just so tiring. The pacing was getting to me. That's That's the... By, by the time we actually hit this breakdown, about halfway through the track, the pacing itself was getting tiring to me because it didn't feel like there was a lot of change up. And when you actually get everything but the percussion line removed, that percussion line is, is simplistic. It's just too little, too little going on right there. And to try a rebuild on top of that, it wasn't enough for me to really get back into the, the actual rhythm of the track. The horns had potential. The bass was really trying to, to showcase it, but it just showed that the synth itself, the synth backdrop that was going on, was just there to flesh out the rhythm a little bit further, and it wasn't, it wasn't doing anything else. It wasn't really supporting much, especially when you get to the, like, eighth repetition, the seventh repetition of the chorus yeah. at the end of the track. It's strange, it's, and for a while it was accompanied with the, that little strange, yeah, that, that strange child's voice, the robot-sounding thing. Hey, uh, I'm walking to the beat. Right now I'm talking to the street, and now I'm burning in the heat. This does nothing for me after the <laughs> French, you know? <laughs> yeah. And no, it was just a, a, another quirky little thing. Um, so yeah, this was a... I'm still in a very deadened state with this album as of this point. It's in a middle ground. It's not 100% committing to I guess the goal that had been previewed of, you know, uh, unearthing something from 30 years ago, and I feel like at least give me one or the other at this point. Uh, let's see what we get later. Track 5, Moon Crystal. This is the first one that actually did it for me. So it went 100% back in time. So this is a complete instrumental. It's also one of the shorter songs at this point on the record. Um, <laughs> complete aside, that's almost a non sequitur, but Moon Crystal, to me, just reminded me of the new Pokemon Moon that's coming out. Pokemon <laughs> oh, Sun, Sun and Moon. Moon yeah. Because Moon Crystal, like, I, I don't know, it seems very video gamey almost, but like old school video gamey, which Pokemon's been around a while. It's well, a very... Well, let's call a spade a spade here. This, this, this is not a, a has nothing to do with video games. This feels sure. like a TV intro. Yeah, no, absolutely, you're right. Uh, like absolutely. maybe I'm purely speaking on a title level, not yeah. the content of the track. Fair enough. And it's a happy-go-lucky intro. I mean, it really it it's got you. It sounds like it's, a sitcom. It's the back theme. and forth. It's the back. It's got some like yeah. sway in the head, and then I feel it like does it's not it, like and a, then it does it again. It's not like a top-rated show. Yeah, it's 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 a series hey, so of top-rated shows had some pretty terrible themes. True. Yeah. Come and knock on my door. That was pretty bad. But 
what we get here is just send a your hate mail to John Sanders oh, at no no no, 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 no. no, 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 you can't like the intro to that, that, that <laughs> show. But anyway, not allowed. According back on, to John, back on topic. This was just a series of reprises of the same idea, and very, very little change, pit by bit, beat by beat. It was, it was very long winded in in trying to get across the idea that this is happy go lucky. I feel like it would have been great because we would have been seeing oh and so and so playing the dad like we would have had that experience of we have to go through the phases and at each beat you're introducing the next cast member exactly and i think i liked that because that to me brings out something that maybe it wasn't there in his philosophical message but i feel like it has to have been written in the in the in the core of this album that that some people along the way as they're along the ride for this are going to start ro- rolling their eyes yeah. they're going to start they're going to start chuckling a little bit as they hear these things. I don't know if they're going to be chuckling in the first four tracks, and that's what part of my point was, is that, well, yeah, they make references, but it's not so overt that it's it's silly. Maybe some things are silly, like the saxophone whales, but it's all just in, like, soundbite scale. This is on a track-long scale. It, it flat-out sounds like a TV intro. I would even go a step further to call it a community television intro, like something stock, you know? Just for for utilization, for some purpose. Not to say it's not well written. In many ways, I think that's why it's well written. In this case, he's going 100%. I feel like I'm back in the time. I want, I'm want. i actually kind of racking my brain to think what this is from. And the well, fact that he was able to do that is a little bit impressive to me. Right, and I would agree. I mean, it was to the point where we were throwing out show names. And I think that while it was on the shorter side for the record, it still wasn't quite short enough. I do agree that it kind of loops on itself a bit too much, but... I'm kind of in the same camp as Steve. Like, I, I don't want to give it too many minuses because it's absolutely invoking exactly what it was set out to do. And, it, and that's powerful in music. And it's the first time... Whether it starts, you like it or not. It's the first time it starts bringing out the word junk in a, in a very... Kind of an endearing way. Yeah. You know, that junk... We, we think of all this stuff that came out of... You know, if, I'm, if I'm referring commu- to community television, for instance, then, you know, it's like of all the... the, the the themes that were written, or the music themes that were written for shows that are long gone, that yeah. are just forgettable, done. That that is what is junk in society, and it's interesting that that we we view it through this lens today because we have this this concept of the '80s as it being, you know, well, the technology wasn't a hundred percent there, you know, some of the stuff was a little bit campy because it was still a little bit early in in not really early, but kind of in the middle-aged years, the awkward middle-aged years of TV history. And so they did stuff like that, but it doesn't mean that the music is bad. It just means that it's forgotten and undeveloped. And that, I think, is in direct conflict with the early tracks in this album, pop music, and this is the rant that I went on at the top of the show, about 80s pop music that has been so furthered and so just done in, done to death into the ground that... that I'm I'm personally a little bit tired of it all, but this is a facet of the '80s that you don't see too much. Yeah, it's an homage to a dead time. But does it being an homage make it like brilliant? I mean, yes, it's. I'm not saying brilliant. Let's let's not mince words here. Well, <laughs> it's not nitpick just, either. Well, I'm not nitpicking. I'm saying. After two or three repetitions of the same thing, move on, do something else. Yes, an homage, but you said yourself it was a little bit on the long side. And this could have done a lot more being short. Be 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But it was ju- it but just like you were saying about introducing characters, you know, at the, t- at the beginning of a but sitcom. At this point, you wouldn't get that effect if they hadn't repeated point, it. 
I would want to be skipping it. I would want today's technology to skip no, this. No, because on the on I the don't... album it was new for me, and I was I was I had to spend time getting down that nostalgia path. But he, think about these old shows. I mean, you yeah, you get the even as far back as like Happy Days. Happy Days is probably the the perfect example of an introduction. It was actually short and sweet. It was yeah, but that song short... repeated on itself longer than you remember it because it had to introduce all the characters, and I think that's. But what I'm not getting that here. That's what I'm saying. There's nothing to offset the fact that it's just a repeating loop introducing. I'm not getting characters here. I'm not getting faces or played by or things like that. I think that's actually There's... what makes it eerier. Is because we think that it's almost there. It's like in that uncanny valley of not well, it's, quite a hundred percent being part of the the sitcom. Like, it never made it into being the intro to a show. That makes it eerie. And, and I like I'm that. not getting that eerie feel. Like, for me, this is just a lack of substance to go along with it. I Like, I needed something else. Otherwise, it's just, like you said, that tune that didn't make it. That droning noise that you just... Yeah, it's recognizable for that show. That show well, you like. But without the show connotation, it has no impact for me. Well, See, but be- I have to disagree... Only a little because what Steve brought up about it, the Uncanny Valley section is interesting. There was a YouTube video called Too Many Cooks that was an Adult Swim gag that looped a TV show theme like this over and over again and it got more and more twisted. Characters keep coming back in and then dying and then there's a serial killer running around killing all the characters and it gets so warped and it just looped but the song keeps looping and keeps going and it's a running gag that goes so long that you think it's going to end and then you get tired of it and then it comes back on itself and this feels like a very kind of boxed and miniaturized version of that in an audio form. Now it's very interesting that you mentioned Adult Swim because I actually this may be my my only chance to actually mention and name drop this on, on this show. It reminded me of Tim and Eric. If anyone watches Tim and Eric, it is a, a very strange, surrealist show, uh, which is not for everyone, because, but it has its own little, it's a sketch comedy show, essentially, extremely surrealist, and it kind of, if, if you were to pin it down to something, it does make fun of community television, it makes fun of very, very cheaply produced things, and within that, there is a lot of comedy. You gotta look for it, and some stuff is gonna be just like, okay, they were on something when they made that sketch, but th- this, is, this is kind of what this show, uh, uh, what this, um, I just called it a show, maybe that's a Freudian slip, like, this is what this, <laughs> this intro theme reminded me of, like it would be invented for something that was based around parody, which is why I was brought down the nostalgia path, I was yeah. brought down the comedy path, and I had a very similar reaction as to the kind of the eerie uncanny valley as, as what you said, because when you get two minutes into a Tim and Eric sketch, that's, they can't get uncannier. And this is where I'm just, I'm going to disagree, because I don't, I don't feel it. And I guess that might be the crux of of how we were regarding this this track. I just don't feel that uncanny valley. It feels just it feels like what many of those songs were. Kind of just a way to brand the show. And without that show brand on this, I'm not feeling anything for it. Alright, that's a fair perspective. I, I think it's interesting actually that we're starting to bring up this argument here over a song like this that a lot of people probably would be inclined to dismiss as like a filler track for the album, but I think really it's closer to the heart of what he's getting at, which is why I'm, I'm a little bit more curious by it. And I think the same uh, discussion is going to come about maybe even in a bigger way in track 6, For the Kids, uh, featuring Suzanne Sundfor. Oh, the sap is dripping. <laughs> so yeah, this song, uh, on the whole, is framed as pretty much an adolescent ballad slash lullaby. I think 
any classic TV show where a younger child of the family is struggling through a tough moment and an either an older child or a, sis or a cousin or a parent is trying to soothe that child. Like, that is exactly what it is. I also compared it to uh, any ballady Tiffany song from the 80s. But, of course, I said Tiffany 80s and Steve went, Who? <laughs> Which is fair, making you feel, but still older. making me feel very old. So anyway, but yeah, th this is <laughs> I, I, absolutely I, I, cliche as they come. I want to make an illusion. Disney, it's so Disney esque mm. from the first few steps. If it's that, it's it's the real crux of a Bambi style. I mean, I movie. would go even beyond that and refer to like any song you would see during a photo montage at a bar mitzvah. Like well, it's, it doesn't start off as that. No, that's, that's that comes in when. The horns in that second verse yeah. start showing yeah, You up don't here quite know where it's going to go in the beginning. It's all like piano and strings to start out, barely a bass, and, and then later a saxophone. Um, it even moves just about as slow as sap moves on a tree. But I um, will say that Suzanne has a beautiful voice. Like, I love her singing yes. voice here. It's very sweet and very tender. It feels very motherly in the way she's singing, too. Well, what but, kind of lyrics are we getting? Where are you now? Who do you go to for a shoulder to cry on? I hope that someday you might turn around and come back home. Where are you now? When will I see your face again? No matter how far apart we become, you know that I'll still hear your song. But oh. it doesn't just stop there. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to lay it on thick, I mean, you have to go full force. Because what happens next is a full-fledged, it, it's a Bambi moment. It's that moment, but he's not an adult. It's, it's a child. It's, it's that first little, like, eye-opening talking to your mom this is the day this is our day mom if we believe it it will happen i mean it's so overly childlike full of wonder that it's just i'm getting a cavity mm -hmm. <laughs> i the, and this cavity is like the least invasive cavity of all time too that's that's the problem keep it going don't stop there i'm everywhere you remember i'm in the water on the mirror the strange flower you saw in the forest I'm the morning dust tickling your neck. I'm the wind, Mommy, and the wind is never sad. He's brave and soft and furious sometimes. Soon I'll be strong enough to make you fly with me, and nothing will ever stop us then. Oh, like it's like it's like it's just too much. It's, and it's so on the nose. It's so and the music, but and the music, even without these lyrics, would make me feel like just about the same way. Yeah. The, this, the, the, Talk about music and lyrics being in sync. The the tinny, you know, p uh, keyboard. It's and with the little light strings in the background. I just this is like in case the acting in a in said TV show in said drama whatever. If that didn't sell it for you. And it may w very well not actually sell it for you because the show was probably produced very cheaply. Then they actually need this music in the background to bring out the moment. But it's so overblown, and I understand that it, it kind of is meant to be so overblown. That's, if you're compensating for bad acting, then sure. <laughs> but it's it's just so there that it's like it doesn't even want to try to touch me. I mean, it's it's it just wants to be. It wants to be reaching my inner four-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, my inner child. And my inner child is not having this. This is just, it's too much trying to parallel the art in my eyes. I, I just I, can't was, agree. It I was just, successful with me. Yeah. It did kind of bring me back to, to certain little, not like specific memories, but kind of a feeling. And I think that's what the artist really would have wanted. Because I got to give him credit. Whereas in the beginning of this album, I was like, well, everyone's doing this. The, the, the 80s tracks and those, you know, kind of pop tracks. 
everyone is not doing this. No, sure not. Yeah. And and then the the thing about this also is that as cheesy as it is, it's intentional cheese, and it's like you see a puppy fall over, and you can't just go, you can't help but go. Aww. And that's pretty much yeah. what the song makes me no, do. No, no, no. I got a new puppy. Just got a new puppy. We got it uh, over Mother's Day weekend, so it's like a big deal. But, <laughs> no. I don't go, duh. I go, oh, the puppy fell over. Well, it's, then you, I guess you're, I'm a little cold, more, you're a cold, heartless robot. You're nobody not, loves you. You're I'm not in touch with your, your inner oh, child. Oh, I love her. She's the cutest thing. She's she's a cheagle. She's half chihuahua, half beagle. I Did mean, you just say cheagle? It's a cheagle. Leave. No, it's a real Get thing. Out. It's a real thing. <laughs> you're banished. <laughs> I, I didn't choose a puppy. My mother chose a puppy. It's her puppy, okay? You don't judge. <laughs> she's cute. And yes, I understand. But it's still like I'm no longer a kid and this sort of stuff even as a kid was just so cynical all right this is a this we're entering some curious territory here because (laughs) earlier on i was arguing like well is there a comedic element to this you know because he's trying to bring it out in which case really i should say that should be more successful with you john because then if you admitted that it was like a kind of satire i don't know well i'm not i'm not entirely done with this thought because this kind of goes back to another little line from that that interview uh, where he says, um, this is the interview with Pitchfork, is that after he said he's calling the album junk, that he said that album title in such a deadpan manner that he's impelled to confirm its seriousness, not that he's really one for making jokes anyway. It's a statement, he explains. This is how people listen to music nowadays. They're just going to pick certain songs they like, one, two if you're lucky, and trash the rest. All else becomes junk. And then actually the one of the secondary vocalists here, Meldal Johnson, added, we think about it in terms of all the space junk orbiting the planet. Okay. It's an interesting little metaphor there. And that's actually the, the one who's doing this childlike voice, Meldal right. Johnson. But that means the intention was to not make it memorable? That means the intention was not to... No, no, no. No, no. no. Do not interrupt me on this one. Does that mean that the intention of this music is to not be provocative or endearing or, like, world-changing or anything like that? They're specifically trying to make throwaway music? If that's the case, then yes, they are... Going as generic as they possibly no, I'm just, no, 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 no. I'm just making a, I'm saying. making a distinction between the two possibilities that I brought up earlier. Whereas one was that it is a joke. It's meant to kind of have, yeah, you know, or, or rather, it's it's meant to carry some humorous element to it. You listen to it and then you're thrown back and to 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 the 80s and you're like, ah, what a what an innocent time. But that's not what I take now. I'm eliminating that one possibility. What leaves the other possibility is that this is a genuine attempt to actually bring out the spirit of a specific time in which people did feel this way, and there would be no sap there. There would be absolutely... We wouldn't be saying... We wouldn't be viewing it through the lens that we're viewing now. The fact... Maybe he does actually kind of intend us to have this this sort of snarky, tongue-in-cheek approach to it, but you wouldn't be saying that if you were in the 80s. Maybe some of some people would. I'm sure there was some sappiness to the time, but absolutely it had a purpose, and it was used probably very often successfully. Well, if that is the case, then artistically, he's succeeding. He is capturing... The soul of the sitcom intro, the soul of the child love story, the 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 duality between mother and child. Right. Now, yes. I'm leaving room for your argument that you know, yeah, of course, it's it's, it's that that musically not it's really not developing anything. It's not advancing anything. But to even to even approach that, no one has the balls to do that. Yes, that makes it good artistically. 
It does not make it good musically. It does not make it good music. Well, enjoyable I, I music. I disagree that with that. Actually, I think that the music no, it itself makes it is not provocative. It makes it an argument point. It makes it a great piece of art. Art as a whole, a way to start a conversation, like the one we're just having right now. But that does not mean I'm enjoying it. That does not mean I'm 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 even meant to enjoy it. There's, it just means I'm supposed to experience it. There's cheaper, and for that, there's cheaper for that, stuff out there, and there's there's simpler stuff out there. But this the, is no. not incredibly cheap or incredibly simple. It may be cheesy, but it's 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 still it's still pretty good music, I think. And that's where I'm just not getting on board. I'm not finding it to be like really exemplary music. I'm seeing it as solid renditions of an ideal, solid brushstrokes of creating this tapestry that he is doing so far. And for that, I thank him because right. we're having this conversation because we're actually able to critique it but I still have to view it as an enjoyment factor as propelling music in some way whether it's even propelling the past into the present and I'm just not seeing that as endearing I'm it's not certainly seeing that not as something it's certainly not something cases. anyone would dream of advancing I think and I think the fact that he's even curious about revisiting it is really really well it's curious to me so let's see what we get in track seven, a track called Solitude. Um, they kind of threw back, ironically, to more, really more of a modern uh, side here. This is kind of distant, echoey choir uh, of at least, like, maybe the several voices in the band. That's how much of a choir you really get. And then the strings start building. You have some cinematic overtones. This, I feel like, was a little more of an ode to it rather than actually using the time period to its advantage. This was kind of an ode using a little bit more modern things. It's one of the rare times they do that in this album. And I thought they really started pushing boundaries here and I think this is one area where we may all agree it's probably one of the best tracks in the album because at least in this case it's, it's aligning on so many levels first let's just start off with this very slow beat um, when it finally enters, when it finally really works to the advantage of this, I think that the slow beat, and, and not just this track, but a lot of other tracks, work to work to its advantage. It allows you to sit with um, with some of the little comping for a longer period of time. It allows you to digest more of it in the course of, of a couple seconds. And it's not a percussion beat, though. It's actually a beat built into the rhythm of the organ work that's going on there. Yeah. That's being complemented by the longer strings. Very tasteful, and on a basic level... It left me in a beautiful nowhere space. It, it left me up in the air. I really didn't know what was going on, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being able to question what was going on. Well, let's use, let's, let's use this as an opportunity to go back to the lyrics, because um, if, if, it's strange that suddenly now we should come out of the 80s. At least I wasn't feeling it as much here than, than in earlier places. I'm sure there are still elements that are there. But in the lyrics, he, he begins, Somewhere back in time, I left a part of me. I want to see if you can try to bring it back to me. You got to go where I cry. I'm taking on the tears. I want to see if you can try. Drink a little bit of it. No, no. And that chorus. I mean, <laughs> just just let's look at the, that that theme right there. The concept. I, I at least I'm I take it that this is his this is his ode straight up. That maybe a lot of his more precious memories are from the time period. I don't know how old the guy is. I really am not sure like what age he would have been in the 80s. But I imagine whatever it was, he experienced it in some manner, and that's either it's it's an, or, uh, a space and time that he's idolizing. But I, that's what I see in the lyrics here. It, he's either idolizing it, or that's where he had some very precious emotional. It's where he's tethered to. 
I want to take it back to the instrumentation though as well because there's some weight to that as well. What I like here is that the, the beat that John was talking about that comes in and weaves into the piano work and kind of complements it lends the um, instrumentation very well when it dives into this kind of synth solo that that was really engaging that comes oh, about a little more than a third of the way into the song. That was probably my favorite part of the track, maybe my favorite part of the album. Because up until this point, we really hadn't get, gotten so many interesting solos. I mean, I mentioned that guitar solo earlier on. It was more on. playful than interesting. Yeah, it was just playful. I thought that there was a cliched element to it. This, The synth solo, for instance, in the beginning of the album didn't intrigue me at all. But by a certain moment in this solo, I, I realized just how exploratory it was really being. I mean, sure, they're working with the same chord rotation, but it, it, it does such a phenomenal job. There were moments where these synth bends actually started giving me chills, um, like further and further into the synth solo. There's just the, these <coughs> series of bends, each one kind of like overtaking the next uh, in, in terms of how unexpected it is. You keep thinking that within the confines of the album, it's going to wrap up, it's going to wrap up, it's going to, you know, it's kind of neatly wrap itself up in a nice little package. But that's not what it does. It just keeps on going. It's it's this independent entity. And then we get a second solo, almost uh, almost immediately following it. I, and these strings actually proved to me something that was a positive that I didn't actually like in the beginning of the track. When the actual percussion line comes in, at the end of that first chorus of no, no, and I love how haunting and eerie this chorus is. So simple, perfect as an as a depressing answer to what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't like how the percussion grounded me. I was enjoying my nice outer space experience, my nice nowhere place. And when it brought me down, when it really cemented what was going on, it felt like a little bit of letdown. But what the percussion does to these strings is amazing, is... A solidifying experience because what the synth did just prior gets ex- extrapolated on so dramatically with the strings. They go through a much longer form, a much more intricate form, and it's at every corner there's just something new going on once again, mm-hmm. and it's a completely different way. I really didn't expect two, two solos back to back. I mean, I thought it was like a string reprise. You were going to get another, you know, a little bit of comping well, to kind of tie it was together. was in the beginning when the strings first came Yeah, back when in. they first start. But then they, it, it's almost like seamlessly developed into that solo when there were was a lot of overlapping. I, I was just, I was really just on a, on a, a journey for this track. I, as general as that sounds, you know, it's just not something the album had really given me. It normally is snapshots, and I don't think... Even as much as I may, you know, defend the last couple of tracks, Moon Crystal and For the Kids, for what they were doing, I still accept that there are kind of moments. You you take a snapshot of maybe 10 seconds of the track, and you pretty much have digested the whole entire emotion. This is, is something else. I don't know what it is. I think it's just his very dire ode to a bygone time, and the fact that I think he feels very disconnected in his current time. Well, yeah, and you get a sense of that from, I think, the the second solo especially. The strings just have such a stronger emotional weight than probably any other individual moment on the record. And then the way they pare down the entire track pretty much for the whole last two minutes um, until it ends, the way it opens up, I think really hammers home that point, that emotional point that you're making, Steve. It just it goes from being so well-developed and so full of everything to being completely pared down and picked apart till it pretty much ends on a fade out I believe. It's very strange there's still a part of me that is almost like just kind of split I, I know I've kind of edited out the, uh, the, the the comedy side to this but I'm still not entirely committing to the concept that he's lost in a time period in which he feels offered more promise or whether well people want junk so I'm gonna give him junk 
but I'm gonna say I'm gonna give them little little subtle you know little subtle bits of color in the process perhaps as his own way of saying that well junk is not necessarily junk well see I think and John touched on this a little bit before I don't think there's any intention from the artist of any of this to be junk I think based on the quote that you read that yeah. he's talking about the superficial oh. view of the audience assuming that there's a couple of good tracks and the rest is junk. And so that's why I think that that's a stronger point and that more is in line with what you're saying, so, Steve. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree it's the second argument because the first one that Steve initially thought I was arguing against because it would have made it really bad. But the second take on it actually does work. Yes. The second take of more looking through your junk drawer and finding all those useful little tidbits that you had at one point and you just kind of throw in there and leave to the side and you kind of forget about but then when you see it and you need it and you use it it's something that you kind of leave for a rainy day junk drawer might have been a better title for this album i guess it would have gotten a little bit more of the the impact across i guess from the initial onset because then i would have felt like it was it was just diving through old vhs tapes and taking those little bits of music and Exemplifying off air, you had actually said dumpster diving, and to come to think of it, you look, you can find good things in dumpsters. You were supposed to cut that, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, you were, and you're gonna leave it in, yeah, I am. You're such a <laughs> but see, I should well, curse just to make you bleep it out. <laughs> but see, the thing is also, and I, I agree that junk by itself conveys that point without changing the name to junk drawer. That said, Shape of the Dark Lord has a, a album of previously unreleased and remixes called Junk Drawer, but. I think that this just being junk and not junk drawer just gives it a more kind of here it is kind of feel. It's not even in a drawer somewhere. It's just he's covered in junk. Well, junk you don't <laughs> throw away. Trash you throw away. And right. stuff like that, like garbage is gets thrown away. But junk, junk you just hold on to. And in the next track, The Wizard, it, it feels like another one of those things that you kind of just held on to and wanted to showcase. So this is an interesting track because it's also a, ra a relatively short track, but it's got a pretty A and B structure here, not maybe instrumentally, but definitely narratively. So the, the track starts feeling kind of distant, almost like you're listening to the music through a door or through several doors or even outside a building. Yeah, it's extremely muffled, like you're on the outside of a club and you're hearing it from the distance. But musically, it sounds like a club. It's dancey, it's kind of got a cool little synth run. It's It feels very in line with the other synthy kind of stuff he's right, done so far. Right, because if you're on the outside of a club, I mean, I think the fact that it's muffles sort yeah. of portrays the sadness in listening to something that clearly, if it were played loudly, as we will in a few seconds, you know, is would be pretty fun, I guess, if you were involved in it, if you were in the mix. But he's on the peripheral. Your 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 character, because you're 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 made to feel like you're actually present there, or like you are on the peripheral of something. And then finally, when the beat kicks in, everything's brighter. You're there. Every it, it's. I would I would actually argue this is not A and B. It really is just A because it's the same music. It's the same exact thing, but there's just that one obvious difference is that suddenly you're in the room. Well, it's not just a muffle to a brighter noise. It's it's also the way the the tones and the sounds are shaped. Uh, initially, it it sounded like a very natural drum with a very nice reverberation. But when it steps in in the brighter side, it's a uh, a lot stronger, a lot more 
striking, a lot more edged. The tones themselves, the long sweeps that are done, are, are instead of being just elongated, have a lot more dips and bends to them than what you initially thought. It, it's All not right. just, it's not just you know hearing it more. It's a reprise of the A section. It's an A and A prime because they, they're not just flushed out. It's almost like the clarity allows the the texture itself to really be seen. All right, that's fair. I think it was a little bit more colorful, that's for sure. But then by the end of the track, it starts fading. It starts fading kind of back to where it was in the beginning, but it doesn't, like, settle back down to a plateau. It settles down completely until it's gone. Well, this also feels like a longer-than-average fade-out. Typically, fade-outs are within... 10, 15 seconds. This was a good solid 30 to 40 seconds, I think, of fade-out. Like multiple, multiple measures. Yeah, definitely slowly going out, which I think added more impact, too, because it kind of gets the sense of either he walked deeper into the party and disappeared into the mist or kind of left. And I think either way, it kind of has that powerful narrative to it. I like that he simply used how the music is portrayed to convey a narrative, and I think I, that's I, pretty I, interesting. I, I think the I narrative is very clear. It really is. You're on the peripheral. You're on, you're afraid to step into the thick of it all. You know, you're not sure if that's if you have the if you have the strength. And then finally, you take the leap, and it all happens in an instance. The second the door opens, you're there. But then, can you really take that for so long? You know, before you start feeling disconnected from it all. So then, maybe you do start gradually walking away from the building. You leave, and then the sound gets more distant, more distant, more distant. Or, like you said, maybe you're just standing there, but losing your mind, becoming disassociated. Yeah. it's uh, Either way, however we frame it, I just think it's an interesting way to frame a song, personally. I don't think I've heard anything like this before. It's, it's Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate new forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's such a simple form when you really break it down, but there is, there is some brilliance in the simplicity, and that seems to be these kinds of songs that are just intriguing me more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something I want to see. It, it seems to define the album as a whole, but they certainly end up standing out over the more standard pop tracks. Let's check out track nine, Laser Gun, which also features Mylen. Um, the piano in the intro to this track is reminiscent of track one. It feels, again, very Ben Foldsian in a way. Mm-hmm. I love how we've, what, verbed him? Adjectived we've verbed him. him. Adjec- we've verbed him. Adjectived. Adge- adjectived him. Yeah. Adjectived. No, I think it's adverb, actually. Adverbed him. <laughs> Can oh. you Ben Folds that for me? That's a verb. Thank <laughs> you. That's true. Um, if you would like to write us, Ben, and, and thank us, you can write us at admin uh, at You should really call him Mr. Folds. Mr. Folds. There you go. I mean, of the <laughs> he's three. Not, so, he's actually met Ben Folds. It's not that was, far off. I was going to say. Um, yeah, but are you really on a first name basis? No, absolutely not. There you God, go. no. Um, anyway, so Laser Gun does have that feel. And then when the, the beat comes in pretty quickly after that, it kind of shifts it into a more well, of a strut. The piano sets up the rhythm. Yeah. The drum complements that piano very well. Mm-hmm. And the combo is really, really solid. And it's yeah. great that it's really, really solid because there's not a whole lot besides rhythm going on with this track. Yeah. And, but and it's okay. Yeah. And it's, then, I mean, once... This is not something I don't need... I don't need a lot of melody on it because it's solid. It's a great rhythm. It's something I can really get behind. I even I, like the intro, too, because yeah. the intro had that, like, it was, like, two measures. It felt like a 5-4 or something like that. Or was yeah. It was four measure 5 like, And then it finally that goes little, into, little settles clipness, in 4, four. That little extra little bit. That extra little beat, the piano just, like, goes up a little bit. And it uses that fifth beat to do that, and then later it. on it doesn't. Yeah, I, I missed, missed it, too. It. Yeah. But I, I, I very quickly accepted not having it. Yes. Because it True. was it was great. It was it was the the basis for a a solid, like, trip that we're getting right here. Because... 
lyrically, it's... I like that it's all over the place, and I like that it follows Wizard. Because if you're going to have the idea of losing your mind at the end of the Wizard, small town too hot. I'm going for a trip. A place where dreams are made like comic strips. I see colors and planes, laser guns and champagne. I feel strong and smart, ready for a new start. It's got me too. Hmm. Yeah, okay. We're going on a little bit of a magical mystery tour right here. And I know it's surprising what the brain can do. I can hardly believe it, what it makes me do. And I repeat, I know it's surprising what a brain can do. I can hardly believe it, so let's go and get it. Everything we've been dreaming, so let's go and get it. All the things we've been missing. Yeah, all right, cool. We're in a very different place right here. This one feels like one of the strongest themes right I'm, from the get-go, lyrically. Oh, well, I don't know about that. That's not... Uh, new starts, you know, new beginnings and all that. Yeah. I don't think that's a strong theme necessarily, but it is a consistent theme um, well, then, again, because it's very hard now for me, and maybe we have ruined ourselves by doing our research here, um, ironically enough, because it's hard for me to view this album, I guess, not through the lens of this concept of, of wanting new musical directions, and yet it, it strangely has this tendency to stay within this little circle, as, a, as, as he put it, like a statement, his own personal statement against music. I, I want to bring it back to the instrumentation a little bit, though, um, to also talk about how the drums seem to be doing something a little more natural, physical here, and they're playing a little more. It's not just a steady beat here. They kind of roll a bit, and they kind of add a little, little bit of accent to it. They're not by any means doing fancy drum work, but it's at least more engaging and interesting than the drums had been previously. Well, it's not just the drums. A lot of layers come in and out of this track to also complement what the drums are doing. True. And this fact that it's just phasing in and out of the layers, that it's really just like floating along this thing. I'm so happy that this track doesn't go on much longer than it does, because by the end of it, I wanted to start disliking it. And I knew if it kept going, I would have started disliking it. I mean, it had a pretty f straightforward pop structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. and it... I gotta confess, I, I think this track did start running on a little bit too long. Yeah, but Later the... in the track, it brings in the... Brings in with those kids. The kids yeah. start singing with this kind of like attitude-driven mantra. Um, I guess I'm back to eye rolls at this point because it's another one of those cases of like, well, you're there, you're in and around the time period, but you're not a. Maybe it is a committing 100, percent and maybe it's just a different side to it. And this is where I guess we walk into the subjective territory of music. I, I, it was this. I, I'm not often a fan of the mantra type stuff. I find it to be just so overtly cliched. I don't really find it catchy. And if I don't find it catchy, then I'm not really gonna enjoy it. I maybe, maybe started enjoying it when they they brought in two different overlapped melodies, where it was like the the kids in one area and then the, the, another choir to go along with that. Then it was sounding kind of neat, but. I don't know. Overall, it did seem pretty prolonged. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that I didn't enjoy it as a result, but I would agree that it became noticeable, to say the least, at, you know, at that point. From track 9, we go to track 10, because that's how numbers work, and we go to Road Blaster. Road Blaster brings back that sax we got earlier in the record, and this time it sticks around a little bit, which I was very happy to hear, because, I mean, honestly, think of a lot of the cheesy 80s songs that we all love and there's plenty of sax in those songs. Really, really quick one thing about the rhythm because in the very beginning I thought the beat was pretty annoying and then about 39 seconds they added this little... <laughs> about a 39 little, seconds? About, approximately. Maybe it was 39 and a half. I, I can't be, you know. It added a little more of a strut that made it, made it kind yeah. of work a little bit more. But this is just yet another That's one. About, it's straight out yeah. of the time and of course you just said Miami well, Vice and you're pretty much there. 
Yeah, it was sleazy, and I didn't understand why it was sleazy until the percussion and bass pair up and really showcase the club scene that's going on. All right, here's here's where the, the track horns. gets different. And then the horns. The horns do some really interesting comping. I'm not sure yeah. it's the most pleasant thing. No, yeah, it's interesting, and I guess that was before around uh, two minute one second, approximately two and one. And you hear you get this final drum flourish, and then everything is completely cut out, save for just a little bit of ambient synth work, a tap, and then a melody starts coming back in in a bit of a simpler way now, just a little bit of vocals, and then following that we strip it down again. This is this is a pretty abstract track because it actually is the the first track that starts doing something with what I thought was going to be another pretty typical like just 80s reference, and then it it starts deconstructing it from from the ground up. Uh, we because following that we strip it down again and we get this interlude filled with all these yelps and jungle sounds that then gradually start to build up to the hook again. It was a little bit awkward. I don't. It wasn't just awkward. It was elongated. The outro, because the track the track almost has no lyrics, really, for its length. It's almost used as coloration for what's going on, so you can almost, almost regard it as an instrumental. But this instrumental, the outro, goes on for a really long time, and that's what wears me down. Because I wasn't truly enticed by what was first built. I think it was colorful and I think it had potential, but I think the fact that it just kind of like casually and not so gracefully built its way back into the hook, I think that's why it, it just didn't really work with me. Well, I mean, it showed me that I think he's more successful when he really is working with a solid concept moment, which is why I'm so obsessed with those middle tracks. But here uh, he tried to do something with a bit of a longer form and I, I don't know if it worked. Yeah, I would agree. I think because he kind of elongated it, it did become predictable. And the ones that were predictable, but at least trying something new, whereas this became predictable and was doing mostly what he had been doing already. It did, yeah, and it didn't just—it didn't feel like a tight product. It felt like a lot of little random things being thrown in. I, I don't even know how to take those little yelps <laughs> toward the end. It, they're just—they're there. Well, deal with them. <laughs> All right, track eleven, tension. And if there was a more misappropriately named track in the universe I haven't run across it yet. Could be ironic. Mm, yes, and I do like my irony. Um, but this is pure, inoffensive, synth rises and falls in a four a, count. It's a slow instrumental groove. Um, there are no lyrics here. To me, I compared it to feeling like you were underwater. Think like old school movies and video games, that kind of music you would get in an underwater level or an underwater scene, the kind of ethereal, kind of floaty sound. And the sort that's of underwater kind of level here. that really doesn't make the game any better. In fact, <laughs> according to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and pretty much every Mario ever, it makes it worse. It makes it more difficult. It's long. You're going to be listening to a lot of that music. In fact, that's probably going to be your nightmares. Here, it just coasts. It's another one of those tracks that happened early on that hit me in the back of the neck and flowed around. It didn't do much otherwise. And it's exactly for that reason that I think it is also in that ballpark, and that's why I liked it. it yeah. I think it's quite beautiful, but it also does absolutely feel like a travel video from the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You know, just this like short little 15-minute VHS that you picked up at the agency. And like, oh, I think you, you'd like to learn about the Cayman Islands? Well, here, watch this video, you know. Maybe you'll come back and we'll make some plans. What's this voice? What do you call it? I don't know. Travel agent? They don't exist anymore. So That's not true. They <laughs> do exist. They, yeah. they do exist. I, I just insulted a whole populace. The that's big true. one is uh, Expedia.com, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's a website. Yeah. 
No, that's the travel. Well, I guess agent. people that's... work, you know, and yeah. they make the websites. Yeah, and they do they searches don't... to. On behalf of the podcast, we digress. But with the song, <laughs> I you were going to apologize to all yeah. travel agents on behalf of Crash Course. Well, that too, maybe. Um, we'll really set stage. All right, later. but back then they were, they like they had they had offices, no, and you'd sure. go there. You know, I don't know. They, they, those still exist, but, but again, digression aside, I think my biggest problem with the song is that. Even for its length, it did feel a little repetitive. But I, I, while I'm, for the first time today, probably in between John and Steve, okay, I do lean more towards Steve. I do agree as a whole. I did enjoy the track because of how it made me feel, and it did feel in the vein of stuff he's doing on purpose with devotion. Yeah, and so in that vein, I enjoyed it. But there's not a lot to say beyond that. This track is pretty face value beyond that. It's also times like this where I go back to my my first theory uh, that there was a little bit of a joke written in here because it is just bound to get so many eye rolls going for yeah. anyone who's ever watched a travel video from the era. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't see how he could write this entirely without while being so stoic as he seemed yeah. to be in in said interview. So, I guess that leaves us just going on to the next. I, I, I just, what can I say? I liked Tension. I thought it was a beautiful track. I even liked the little tingling toward the end <laughs> and the way it fades out. It's just a nice, uh, finite piece. Let's go to track 12, Atlantique Sud, featuring Mylan for well, the fourth time now. Fourth or fifth. I've lost count. Yeah. Um, and I could go count, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> this track is, we've got another kind of ballad track, but what I like here is this piano ballad the vocals it's not male or female usually when she's featured it's all female vocals here we've got except maybe like harmonizing choruses here we've got a legit duet where he'll sing some lines then she'll sing some lines and I thought that was really cool we hadn't really heard that on the record and I like the way their voices complement each other I'm not there I'm definitely not there I'm I'm not saying that they don't complement each other. I'm just not enjoying the vocals here they, I think they seem very in, unimpactful they seem seem just like a conversation is going on, I'm not supposed to really even be eavesdropping. It. I, I think I maybe I'm, I'm for the first time on John's side in oh, the wow. course of this episode. I think that these voices were so, they're so tender, they feel like they're all on Xanax. <laughs> and it's just, it, it was just that n no not moment. Not that we have a problem with people on Xanax. Yeah, you use it, I don't care. It, just, it doesn't work for the, <laughs> for the song. Um, but it's just... Holy moly, I, I need something here to just stand out. Um, the French maybe just as the fact that it's French stood out, but there's there's really nothing beyond that. Um, it would... feels like the end of a movie. That's the way the whole track feels, not just to even hone in on the vocals themselves. Maybe it in fact is what John said. It's a conversation that you're not really supposed to be you know, there for, but yet the movie is wrapping up, which gives you this weird you're there but you're not kind of sensation. I mean, while I will agree that um, you know, the song as a whole didn't do anything super complex. And beyond me liking the, the back and forth of the vocals, that feeling that you guys are describing, I actually enjoy that. Not that I enjoy eavesdropping, but I enjoy the feeling it's giving you of that. However, I will agree that the instrumentation does nothing for me in this track. Well, the drums and bass here are there, and that's about it. They're barely even there. They're, I know. For most of the track, they're not really even there. It's the just, focus is definitely on the vocals here. It's almost... Ish. No, it's all, it's on the piano and the drawn strings almost oh, equally, sure. which are just long strings and timing piano. There's not a whole lot to them. They're, they're, they're very simple. They're just there. All I mean, said, it's like it's an accidental thing that made it into the movie to be... It doesn't even... It's not even... Like, I don't even want to talk about this in terms of like simple complex. It's just... It's... it's, it's, it's it's an aesthetic 
and that's it. It's an aesthetic yeah. that we all know. Um, the end of a very tender, you know, family drama, maybe. I mean, as like it, it clearly has the tone of the the climax is done. All of the action is done. We're just wrapping up now. We're just characters are just saying their final little things to each other to make you feel full bodied, warm hearted at the end of it. I wouldn't say it's the end. It's the pre end. Like the well, you it's know. not the end of the album, but I gotta say this is pretty. Th- like this is the end of the film. He has a few more things to say in his story, in his statement. Fair point. <laughs> All right. Track 13, Time Wind, which I think is probably my favorite title to date on this Pong podcast because a time wind, that just sounds so epic. You don't even know what it is, but you love no, it. No, I don't care. Well, it features Beck. Yes, who we, we, although generally had mixed feelings on his album we reviewed, all in all, do love Beck. Yeah. Um, Episode 84, Morning Phase by Beck. Check it out. Um, this, my only issue with this track is... Look, I, I like Beck a lot. I happen to love a lot of his records. I happen to enjoy Morning Phase, I think, the most out of all of us. There's no reason for him to be on this record at this point. Like, I don't want to say there's none, because I like Beck, and I'm sure there's a reason they collaborated. But I, just within this track, there's nothing that feels specifically Beck about it. His well, vocals, it's him singing. And if he helped write the track, the instrumentation feels very much in line with everything we've gotten so far. Vocally, there's, there's definitely, yeah, out. I agree. There's nothing really to stand out about it vocally. But I do want to see, because the lyrics offer some things that I feel may contribute to this overall statement, and I'm going to read them. Wake me up from the long way that we've come, just to find out that it's all been said and done. But we'll do it again and say it's all in our heads. Something automatic when you speak before you think, and you walk beside yourself to pass the time. If you never play the game, you never lose anyway. See the photograph on an empty wall, pictures of a life I can't call on my own. I need a life that won't do me wrong, waiting for the sound of a false alarm, the pictures, all that I know. So afraid to unravel what we've made out of everything that changed before our eyes, you see the turning of the tide will bring us back to the shore. Take a photograph when it starts to fade to black. Someday you might never know if I was there. It's the harder that you try that makes it hard to let go. See the photograph on an empty wall. Pictures of a life I can't call my own. I need a love that won't do me wrong. Waiting for the sound of a false alarm. The picture's all that I know. See the photograph. Are the pictures real? See the photograph. Are the pictures real? Want the pictures to be real. Want the pictures. Wow, that is deep and beautiful, and I didn't get a damn thing across. No, I know. <laughs> it's oh god, it didn't live up to the name. It didn't live oh. up to the lyrics. All right, but let's 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 parse this out for a minute because just looking at the lyrics alone, I think that is a beautiful cap on this whole album. Oh, I because, would agree. And let's get detailed here. He wants the pictures to be real, as if there is a, a kind of a kind of future. All right, here, here's the thing. I happen to love the whole concept of futurism, which was an idea that was around back in like the teens and the twenties, and it was all based around this future that probably never had a, had a chance. And let's just kind of forget that also that future at the time there were like it had various little different like crisscrosses with fascism. Let's try to forget about that and let's focus on like the positive elements of it, the ideal, the the perfect urban society, all these beautiful bow arts and Art Deco uh, paintings and structures that would come out of the time period. I'm personally obsessed with it, and I love the music that was also written. 
uh, at the time by people like uh, Leo Ornstein and like Scriabin was starting to breach into it is my personal like the future for a certain time. Now, going off something that I know also has been discussed in the course of this podcast, uh, as early as episode 44, we had big discussions on the concept of steampunk, which is also based around that idea. A future for a specific time. A future that is a fantasy. It will never exist. But people become enamored with it, they become in love with it, and they start put infusing it into their art. And I believe that this is doing the same thing, but it's doing it with the 1980s. And he wants the pictures to be real so bad but the turning of the tide will bring us back to the shore. In other words, he can't go down this wholeheartedly, which is why I think this album doesn't commit 100%, and it feels like it's so unfulfilled at every step of the way. But I think that's the point. And I can see that. I just wish the song conveyed it instrumentally. I hear what you're saying, and I think... I agree with John. The lyrics just don't convey that within the structure of the song. Did I mention I was parsing this out? Yeah. Of course, and, and no, the music wanna... does not bring that out at all. The, oh, thank you. you. No, don't. That, was, much. Yeah, that, was, that was almost as good as what I usually do. Yeah. I mean, and barely as good as what I usually do. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. right. these characters. You, you, You've done good. You, you, good no, but seriously. You. You I, but no, real, realistically, that was an incredible explanation for this track. Thank you. And for the album as a whole. I don't know. If I, I don't it. know if I'm right, but it's what I feel, it and feels, it is. A, it, is a, yeah. it feels right. Re- reading it, yeah. Here's the here's here's the crux, and Matt started on it, and I'm going to end on it. All that happens here is a beat. That's all that's really going on on this track. A beat. You don't get the impact of the lyrics. Beck, yes, yay, Beck. But it's you get the, key, the keyboard really... sound. But the keyboard sound sounds like they're just kind of topping themselves in terms of how cheesy and very '80s focused they want to make it. It doesn't necessarily make the music any better. It just uh, all right. There's a, a slightly different sound. But this is kind of back. Yes, of course. Now we're talking solely about the music, and I'm sorry to, to separate this from from uh, Beck's lyrics or whoever wrote the lyrics for Beck, whichever. Uh, the the music itself sounds like it was once again made for a sad club. It sounds like you're you're clubbing. At, it's like the character Disco Stew, which also kind of follows, right? He's stuck in the seventies. He's, he's it's gonna Disco will never die. That's even a it, Simpsons reference, kids. Oh god. If they don't know. They it's don't still know. around. I mean, they can still watch it. That's no, true. but they shouldn't. Not now. <laughs> they should go but, back. This is what's beginning. But if we're getting this experience of the 1980s version of the world of tomorrow, and I had to do it in that voice because that was the iconic idea of, like, say, the World's Fair or anything like that from well, that even era. Well, forget about the future. Forget about just, I mean, let's just, just look pr- at the time at the at the moment. When you were there in the club, it meant the world to you. We were actually having this other interesting discussion off air that's like, <laughs> the, the, the idea that you would use like a song like this or, or various songs in this album, you know, to uh, to make love to, that they would like go with hand in hand with other really uh, emotional moments in your life. And through the lens of today, it comes across maybe as a little bit cheesy because it's like, well, millions of people probably used the songs for that purpose and they had very special moments to them and I guess I guess we have this little reaction where we like to feel original and we like to feel like we're creating something new and something that is specific to let's say the new relationships that we create throughout lives therefore there has to be some some level of modernity um but that isn't that doesn't diminish what people experienced at the time and it does feel like it's just swirling around there this this this, this club that is in a bit of a time capsule and I think it's 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 fascinating it's just yeah, maybe we're we're too cynical nowadays to really accept this, or maybe it goes back to the fact that he's really not going balls to the wall because he knows that it's dead. 
I mean that yeah that's a fair point cynicism could be a big problem with this <laughs> going back to that interview should I read some more lines no 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 no, no, no. Right. just no, go to the next good. track please. he's a little cynical alright track 14 Ludovine um I'm gonna read a little thing on Ludovine. It's a name. It's a name, and and apparently there's there's a meaning behind the name itself. Because this is all an instrumental. You don't really have a lot to go on here. Mm-hmm. Ludovine. This is internet taken. You know where it is not important. Ludovine is a sensitive woman who is naturally graceful and emanates an air of balance and harmony. On first meeting her, her shyness can make her appear distant, reserved, and secretive, but she's actually very anxious to be liked. Deeply attached to her emotional, familial, and social values, she's a generous lady who likes to make others happy and cannot bear violence or aggression. She is particularly sensitive and worries about being misunderstood. Uh, there's a lot more explanation than that, but the... My name means crown. <laughs> That's very detailed for a name. I get that. I mean, the only in retrospect. Only in retrospect, because of course we have the music to go off of. And what is this music? But all ambient. It's... And maybe there's like a bass pluck in the beginning of the measure, but then it's followed by a long synth drone for the duration but, of the measure, and every chord is but a different. That, that depth of the bass but, gets more intricate as you go along. Yeah. It gets further expanded upon. It, it it allows you to float along, to float forward. It it doesn't change over the course. It doesn't really cast you adrift oh, in a I different disagree. turn. I disagree but there. But it does change the flow of the river you're floating. Oh, all right. And it's, it's, you kind of side, sidled away from that, but that's fine. Yeah. I, I felt, <laughs> here's the thing. Every measure was a different chord, and each chord to me subtly changed the emotion of the piece. I thought that certain chords felt longing, others just contented, others confused, and it was very detailed, and it all absolutely did flow 100%. Um, I think they accomplished so much with so little here, and I love the fact that it was short and concise. This was just... I, I thought it was a little moment of beauty, and it, it's, it seems absolutely like an outlier for the album, but I, it, I think it was something that was needed absolutely to reflect, considering everything that was just laid on us. I don't think it's an outlier. I think that it's a perfectly pl- it's perfectly placed right near the tail end, since the track after this is the final track. And I think the fact that it was so beautiful and serene kind of really hammered home the emotional that Tymwin was trying to convey, but maybe didn't musically, although it did lyrically, this conveyed it musically. Yeah, so right. I think they're First, paired well together. Absolutely. And I think that the instrumentation, I agree, is just, it was just, it felt like a minor palate cleanser at the very end before we get the conclusion, which is what the final track is, absolutely conclusion. Mm-hmm. And track that final scene. track, of course, is Sunday Night, 1987. So if we hadn't ha- hammered that home before, <laughs> yeah. 80s. We haven't actually had a date, we get to say 80, 80s, but it's it's 87 not a date, specifically. it's a year. It's a Summer year. night, what day of the year is that? Our birth years are all circling this. There's three months that we can do with, with just summer night. But so this this song absolutely feels like a summation, a summary, a conclusion to the album. It absolutely feels like it's kind of latching on to the nostalgia very specifically. In fact, I mean, we get harmonica in this track. Harmonica like cheesy, uh, that's what friends are for harmonica in this track. But even before that, I mean, let's just say this is the softest song on the record. It's the most delicate, the very light keyboard in the beginning with no beat whatsoever. And then along with that, the vocals are so very gentle and Mm -hmm. very, very rich though. It seemed like there was more emotion here in the vocals than at other times where he may have been a little bit deadened. But also, I need to hammer home how how beautiful that keyboard was until we finally do get the harmonica solo, which, even though cheesy in its own right, was actually equally as beautiful. 
But everything was expected. That's that's my issue. Disagree. I loved, yeah. I love the composition of this track. I thought it was actually expertly crafted. But this track was forecast from the very beginning of the album. All right. Well, when I agree I know and the, I disagree. The arc itself, I mean, there was no other conclusion but to have a piece like this. And if you're going to do a piece like this, go balls to the wall. Or in this case, be as meek and, and, and quiet and in yourself, as insular as possible. And that's what happens here. I think it is probably one of the better artistic tracks coupled with better music as, as far as the album is concerned. Yet... I, I, this was a complete non-surprise. I was expecting exactly this. Mm, all right, all right. Maybe I, maybe I agree. Maybe I agree. It is a little bit expected, but I, I don't think that lessened its impact. And the lyrics here should absolutely be read, uh, as it is a very specific date. Sunday night, 1987. Uh, week not mentioned. Lost memories, faded pictures. Can you drive me back to this very moment? Julia, Alexander, where did you all go? Love. Old memory from the limbo, from the night. Lost memory coming back. Remember the sun. Remember the colors. Julia, Alexander, let me fill you all. Love. Yeah, I mean, it's hyper-specific. So there's clearly emotion of some kind tied to this. Something happened. Yeah, but I would say <laughs> well, you that don't know. I, I'm inclined to agree on the broad scale that, yes, this track we could have seen coming a mile away, but I feel like the track itself isn't super predictable. Though it has predictable moments, I think, as a whole, the construction is more of an homage to a time, not a ripoff. Yeah, of here, time. here's the unpredictable element that I, I really disagree with John on, and that's the fact that, that the, it starts introducing these specifics. And yes, yeah. it's still kept pretty vague. We don't know who Julia is. We don't know who Alexander is. Um, bygone friends, uh, loved ones, or family. Bygone, you know, are they? Are they? Have they passed? Or is it just maybe they're they're lost alive touch. and lost touch? Exactly. Yeah. Anything could have happened. It could have just been like perfect day. Yeah. You know, I and it makes me so curious. But it brings in a, it brings a a a connection with the overall feel of this album. Even in the tracks, it even it even has a way of of anchoring the tracks that seem so so disconnected and mm -hmm. seem so you know outwardly maybe a little bit silly like they 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 lack a uh, a connection with the artists themselves and it's just like oh yeah it's a tv show it's a time period but maybe it's important in some thread and it this seems to drive it home and prove it well yeah because lyrically this is like fondness and memories and not all memories make sense sometimes they're disjointed or you can't quite remember them correctly yeah and this could kind of connect all of that I think maybe it's not a date it's the things that we used to do on Sunday night right you know any any Sunday night in 1987 uh, a lot of uh, speculation here and I, I think I'll take this as my cue to wrap up all right so on a first listen this this album was pretty enjoyable and I I was surprised even despite all of the 80s references I already went through my rant and I got it off my chest so that way it didn't have to kind of keep coming up throughout the podcast and how I am yes a little bit tired of this constant uh, reflection of the 80s it's just maybe it's just through the lens of what we've done and we're just having a little strain of unluck here that we just keep on getting it because every single artist seems to have their like oh, I'm gonna throw this in I'm gonna throw that in or maybe it was it was pushed on us for so long that it's just kind of is this runaway train. I don't know. 
But this album seems a little bit more genuine in it, and I think it's even more genuine than what we got in Neon Indian. Uh, because Neon Indian was just uh, we're making music, dance music specifically, in the style of the 1980s, but he also, he's he was a very young guy. He's younger than the three of us, and he was making music really that was c- coming out of his knowledge, I think, of modern electronica, but yet he knew at least enough to make references, or use old instruments, excuse me, that was the reason. Uh, here, it's a little all of the above. I, I think the history is important, and I I like the fact that it it explores the curious, uh, I'll use the word outliers again, the things that people don't reference from the 80s, the things that, like I said earlier, no one has the balls to reference because they are just so community television. Who You know, some things you can, you only have room in your head for so many things. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some things you, you can just leave at the door, all right? It's not, it's not art for posterity. It was a thing that we made at the time to make money. We're all in new lives now, new jobs, new everything. But yet, that's something that fascinates me. It's why I find old photographs interesting. It's why I went in this whole rant with futurism. There are certain things about the past that I believe should not be forgotten because they do capture not just an aesthetic, but a specific feel that may never be felt again, may never be captured if we really just leave it in the dust and then, you know, guffaw and balk as we're wont to do with a lot of things that came out of the 80s. Um, ah, that makes me so curious about his world right here. I, I But I, I, I can't ignore some of the obvious things, and those obvious things are, yeah, it certainly isn't pushing music in a new direction that's antithetical to the point, um, completely in this case. But it can be poetic over the course. I, I think this is an album that just because it, it sits where it is and knows where it sits and does it so effectively, I, I think that this is probably the most thorough style study project that we maybe have ever looked at. And we, I throw that around loosely sometimes as we look at specific tracks. But because this is so thorough on an album scale, and I, because I believe there's a room in this world for style study projects, uh, I, I think I'm going to give this an even four. Just, just for the nostalgia trip. Maybe it's a, a, a period at the end of the sentence of the 1980s. Because <laughs> the second I get the next one, I won't be so kind. The one thing that would keep me from that four, and it does keep me from that four, is that, yeah, it may be a period study. It may be, like, the perfect homage to the styles of the 80s. But that said, it doesn't do anything that wasn't already done better in the 80s. It doesn't do anything that wasn't already explored and extrapolated from in the 80s. It's not even really taking that and and playing around with it. It would rather take a step back musically just to hit home the point of this is a sitcom piece or this is an infomercial piece or this is A, this is B. I understand the artistic merit of that, but the pure musical merit of it means that it's willing to be weak to get a point across. And that is a huge detractor. Willing, a willingness to sabotage your own music in, in some way, if that's what it feels like. And I cannot get behind that. I, I can't understand the, the, the full extent you'd be willing to go to just make music that people will regard as junk on purpose. 
yeah, you're making a point, you're making a statement, but I have to review this as music. Even on its artistic side, it's still music. And for that, there's just too much trope in a lot of this. There's too much safety in a lot of this. There's too much repetition in a lot of this. It really doesn't do anything that generic three-star did back in the 80s. For So I would give it less if I didn't know the theme was there, which would bump it back up. I mean, that's where it's balancing. So three, straight up three. It, it is the example of one of the herd. All on you, man. Yep, I'm glad I get an opportunity to completely disagree with everything John said. Starting with the idea that he made this to be junk. Not the case. It's absolutely not the case. He's saying that people will regard this as junk, but there are intricacies to be found if you look, and Steve pointed those out. And I'm somewhere in the middle of you, but I may lean more towards Steve. So here's what I've got from this record. I think that what M83 is really trying to convey is this idea of pop music could be considered junk. Old 80s stuff that you've heard before could be considered junk. But when you search your junk drawer or your junk pile or wherever your junk is, you may find some very either nostalgic things or enjoyable things or undiscovered things just by stepping back into it. Um, you know, I will agree that there are tropes throughout the record. John is right, and Steve mentioned that a little bit too. There are definitely things that are very specifically 80s here, but I feel like those moments that feel intentionally 80s to the point where, John, you said that you thought it was harming the record because it's intentionally bad. I just, I don't think it's intentionally bad. I think it's intentionally making a point but he's still throwing some intricacies into it even the songs that we said like the lullaby song that sounds super cheesy like a, a tv show song there's still things the vocalist does that steps out a little bit there's things like the child talking though really cheesy what he says is really sincere and sweet and feels very personal like as if that's maybe his inner child speaking you know the the the, the writer the artist and so little attachments to that and the personalization of the record, I cannot ignore. So I'm more inclined to agree with Steve. To repeat the points that we made already is unnecessary. I will say from a personal perspective of what I expected from AM83 based on Midnight City and a few other singles I liked from that record, this blew me away by comparison because I feel like he way more committed to the 80s here, whereas Midnight City has the 80s synth but feels like a modern pop track. This very much dives deep, almost like a regression into his own mind, I get the sense. And that's why I'm on board with Steve's theory that maybe there's more personal stuff here than we even know. And maybe reading up more on the artist and the band, we could come around to have even more into it. I mean, I adjusted my rating at the end of the year. We reviewed Queens of the Stone Age because we found out that was about his near-death experience, which, of course, absolutely painted it more personalized. So I had to adjust my ratings considering how much I liked it. I feel like maybe more that I learned about M83 would do that for this here. But for me, uh, I agree with Steve. This is an even four. And I think if he dives even more deeper to 80sception himself or builds on it more in what John's saying, I think either direction and critique are appropriate and could take this band to an even higher and more interesting level. I'll close with one more line of his cynicism. Uh, this is from Gonzalez. 
I believe we're all going to destroy ourselves very soon, he says with a shrug. We'll all have the same fate. To which the author comments, in other words, once we all become space detritus, what's the difference between a masterpiece and some beautiful junk? I understand that. And that'll bring us to our topic for the day. I understand the the, the knowledge or the self-awareness of, yeah, I'm not making something that is a masterpiece. I'm not making a Rembrandt. I'm not making a Da Vinci. It's not the be-all, end-all of art. But, and while I don't think that happened today, put, when, you, when you really just don't put your heart into art, when you really just don't put your your soul or your being or even the effort into art, I feel like you're really just, it's, it's not art at this point. It's consumerism. And I'm not saying that happened here today. In many ways, being so retro, being so throwback is art in and of itself. It's, it's like you said, a piece edition. I mean, it is true that when, you know, he includes some of those, you know, TV themes, it is hard to imagine that being the soul there... Uh, but I do believe we did know, after all, going in that this was a statement, you know. Yeah. Well, and also, I don't want to harsh, harsh him too much because the statement of if you're not putting, if, you, if you're not making something new or something original, that you're not putting your heart into it is not necessarily the same thing. I feel like there's, you can put your heart and soul into something that sounds familiar because, ubiquitous because to you, it's big to you or it's personal to you. And that's all that your heart and soul sometimes needs to And that feed. was one of the things we proved today. That, yeah. you know, his 80s is my 1920s uh, yeah. and all that. It's, yeah, it's this... and that's where I think actually his quote is a little bit, it's a little bit, you know, wrong. In, in, in that I don't think he made junk. I don't think it's space junk. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but the way he phrases it himself is, I feel like he's actually giving less credit to his work than what's going on here. I didn't love it. By no means did I love this album. But at the same time, I feel like he really did he really did try to represent something he loves. And I at the end of the day, I guess that really is art. It doesn't feel like it's it's soulless, which a lot of like music I hate. Sounds well, like. Let's let's analyze the quote. In fact, I, I if I have anything to thank him for, it's that that wonderful quote. It's a great talking point. In fact, um, you know, what's the difference between if we're all gonna die? First of all, that was his premise. You know, if we all just disappear one day completely, then what's the difference between space detritus and beautiful junk? Well, I think t- consider the way archaeologists view the universe. You always have that theory. Well, what what if? Well, what if an alien, you know, came down and what, what are they going to see from, from mankind? What, what, is, what is the one thing that we leave behind? We like to think it's, you know, our, our art, our, our culture, and all of our high art. We would love that stuff to, to carry over. There's a reason, for instance, that, you know, the golden record uh, that was assembled, I believe, or at least helped us be assembled by Carl Sagan um, and was placed on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, I think. And now it's, they're getting, one is already outside the solar system, another one is getting pretty close. Well, there's a reason why they have what they would consider to be most of humanity's high points. We have the, the Brandenburg Concertos by Bach. We have, uh, it has uh, one little piece of rock and roll, in fact, as far as 1977 saw it to be, you know, the, uh, the, the, the current musical trend and was already like historical canon within that was uh, Ch- uh, Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. That's there. Um, but of course, there were a lot of people that hated rock and roll in the 1970s. It was still kind of new, kind of fresh. They were probably still like, when is this fad that has been around for 20 years going to die? Um, and they still thought that, but, you know, so to them it was junk. To them, Chuck Berry was probably junk. It sounds, you know, like, 
that sounds pretty harsh to say nowadays, but everyone goes into this with a different perspective, and I'm just kind of making the argument, well, what is the difference? My my setup here was the way an archaeologist views the universe is, frankly, or views history, they're lucky to have anything. This yeah. is why they find a little piece of pottery, and it's like, this was probably something that maybe someone... You know, just used for if a Roman would use like garum. It's a fish sauce. It's a fish sauce. It's basically their equivalent of ketchup. And we're like looking at this, like, oh, ooh, look at it. Do you want to touch it? Oh my God, I just got chills. I just felt the Roman Empire. No, you you felt someone's ketchup at dinner. That's what you basically felt. But the same argument. They may, maybe they made. shat in the pot. I don't no, know. No, no, no. But other things that you can come up with are That's like, junk. how was it formed? How was the clay mix? What materials are they and using? And you don't think you That's can get where that the stuff science comes from, in from 1980s music? You don't think you could try to like unpack that? What module? What model synthesizer created these sounds? Well, okay, true. That's probably why I rated this album as high as I did. Otherwise, <laughs> it would be like high praise. Too. John, ooh. Well, it was everything. I didn't hear anything new. Yeah, but I but think the harping on new is is your, your three is so high. Well, that's <laughs> it was. It, it felt like I was listening stuff that was made back then, and that is what actually raised it so highly. I mean, it felt like he did replicate it, but that's not what I was talking about. I'm All talking right. about how. There is the soulless level of music in today's society. There is, there is the, manufactured stuff. Not just manufactured, but like overproduced, soundbitey, just not even not even like tailor made to fit in a, a, a market, but just by the numbers. Let's fill in the dots. Like even but, that level. See, accidents happen in culture. Like things. A lot of times, I'm sure, we probably revere things that maybe we shouldn't be revering because at some point they were lifted from an earlier thing, you know? And by the same token, I think that this is the point. Like, if, if someone in the future were to look back at, you know, uh, well, just to be biased, I'll use the example of Justin Bieber track, you know? they Like, they'd be curious. They'd be curious if they didn't have any reference points. Sure. If they didn't have any reference points for the... For the so many musical steps that were taken so that Justin Bieber and his producers could so easily, you know, produce that music and have the effect that they had. Well, there would be people in the future that would be very curious. And we would probably, in the present, we would probably deride that because we'd see that as, a, as a, not a thorough understanding of our time. At worst, it would be a form of revisionism. But he was a facet of culture, and I guess you can understand some things through that. Well, I will I will point out one one big I don't want to say flaw, but it's almost a flaw in that argument. That's not what I would consider lasting like in our society. Not... Up until the last 30, 40 years and somewhat before, but up until the last 30, 40 years, not everything was was digitalized. Not everything was recorded. And when you think back to the greats, what do you remember? Well, there's a reason why that sort of stuff gets remembered. That sort of stuff stands the test of time. But because if no, 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 hang on. If you go back to like the oldest of of old Western art, 
uh, a lot of it, yes, is the sort of stuff we find buried in the dirt, the archaeological. But a lot of that is also the stories that actually withstood time. You don't think there the were maybe Iliad, the Odyssey, the the stories of of Hercules. If you if you're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, like that's withstood the test of but time. But you 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 don't entertain the notion that maybe there was an equally great playwright who maybe didn't have as much but money would, or influence as but I would Plato, argue, Socrates, and Aristotle. I would argue that the Justin Bieber's or the ones that were fairly quickly lost to the annuals. Of time. Well, all right, you're giving me. There's some truth to what you're saying because it does it does give us a bit of a moral debate. Like what is happening now? You know, the fact that we have such a such a drenched culture. Um, there's so much out there, so much to consume. Like, I guess it's a moral debate as to whether we are diluting the pool <laughs> a little bit. By simply having so much, well, then we will have less great things, but someone else might argue, well, we at least have more things. And at least that's good, because in the olden days, people could probably go maybe years without hearing music if they didn't have a lutist in their town. Well, also, <laughs> this idea of comparing what withstands the test of time 40, 50, 60 years ago versus now, when our ability to find, research, look up, and a process is so different from back then. Like, I hear the argument that Justin Bieber's of the world, and I don't want to keep picking on him because his music has even evolved. It, you know, it's not... A little, a little bit. It's not record-breaking, but some of his newer songs at least show well, a quality and care. Actually, it is record-breaking, and that's part of well, the well, issue <laughs> I have with it, yeah. But my point is, there... It, there's an it's so much easier to access and find those things that there isn't people say there's an audience for everything <laughs> whereas back then there might have been an audience for everything too but it didn't translate because the way of record keeping was not the same I, yes the way books and music and things that were not so physical were created because uh, it, they weren't even books they were just stories they were just verbal stories passed right. through time that may or may not have been set to a meter or some of the greats, like why do we revere Shakespeare? When in his is time, it, he wasn't revered. At, uh, there, he was for a time, but bef in the beginning, he wasn't. It, it kind of waxes and wanes throughout right. throughout that four hundred like, year period. Like, uh, Van Gogh never sold a painting. No, yeah. So I mean, and now he's he's a cornerstone of the artistic community. And so it, there's, it, that's a good point that it could go either way. It's you know, uh, look at the Beatles. The Beatles in their time were they were big. They were big, but they are bigger now. And I, I I firmly believe also even Queen, like Freddie Mercury, was big for his time, but he's definitely grown in popularity since because he's become this legacy that if he were still alive today would be changing the face of music. In many ways, once you hit this, once the space detritus gets away from the masterpieces, they no longer have competition. Well, it's context. Context is everything, well, I think. Like, do the Beatles really have to compete with anybody anymore? No. Then there's, But they're still revered. They're still sure. loved. Shakespeare has no... He doesn't compete with anybody anymore, all right? Homer does not compete anymore. Right. Beethoven, Bach, they don't. Compete. I mean, I, but there's still we, I respect said, and love. I just said that Shakespeare waxes and wanes throughout time. You don't think there are critics of Shakespeare? I'm there a critic of some of his work. Yeah. I find his comedies to be okay at best. And honestly, Romeo and Juliet is one of the worst things he wrote, and everybody loves it. I do think it is is a little, you know, pretentious, you know, to just like open a dialogue with like not the biggest fan of Shakespeare. You like you gotta have to frame it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Tell me what else what else was out there at the time that was really worth a read. But those pieces, for the most part, are lost. 
because they just they couldn't withstand time. Time is the great equalizer here. Again, mm. again, lost is relative because we have so much more access to research that we didn't have before. Well, yeah, theoretically, but you're not cannot going lose to find today. Not today, today, but we're never going to pull things out of the 14th, 15th, 16th century or anything like that that we don't already have now. Um, unless we happen to stumble upon a sealed room that luckily has the missing manuscripts of so-and-so or the lost so-and-so painting. Well, but let me get back to my point, though. I mean, just as I said, Shakespeare waxes and wanes throughout history. And, like, right now we are at a high point in which he is considered the the father of modern English literature. Uh, prior to him, you're in Middle English literature, and kind of he actually kind of crosses over. Still, still, he has waxed and waned throughout history. There are certainly times where people did not consider him to be that figure. People might have referred to people that followed him, poets that followed him, like John Donne and all that. Yeah. It, like it, these these things do wax and wane. And Beethoven, actually, Bach is actually a perfect example because now he's considered the father of modern music. It's, he, it's basically like before 1750 and after 1750. It's the way they teach it in schools very much. That's the the death of Bach. He ushered in an entire era of musical consonants. Um, but yet, if you talked about Bach, like in the 1800s, wasn't commonly played. He got forgotten. And actually, in the same way that we just argued, you know, that, well, things can't get lost uh, in the 21st century, because if it's all digitalized and if it's all stored the way all YouTube videos are up there, all YouTube videos ever, unless someone willingly took it down or revised it, they, yes, they're there. But they can get lost in the archives. There comes a point where they're no longer referenced, where they're no longer, uh, they no longer show up in related videos. They're just, they're just echoes, digital echoes. And the same thing can happen in terms of just about anything that is archived. It, it is not, if it is not continuously sourced and sorted, it gets lost. And all of that will be dependent upon discussion, upon aesthetic values of that century. But also thinking about what Steve was saying about Shakespeare waxing and waning over the past. 400 years. Yeah. I just wanted to say it one more time to sure. add to the count. Thank you. If you're doing a shot each time. Appreciate it. Most of the music we're talking about right now, let's say 90% of it that we've had in this conversation, is so young by comparison. In another 100 years, people could hate the Beatles, you know? Yeah, but I wouldn't want to live in that world. <laughs> you wouldn't be. You'd be dead. Ah, uh, you never know. We can my, live my point is, our music, the music we consider contemporary... And, and of the time is so young, even going back to the 60s. And so by comparison, it could change dramatically in the future. Absolutely. Um, I hope that it does. I'm, I'm very curious to see what we get. But think about it. This album was, I mean, we're talking about 80s. That's even younger than the Beatles. Yeah. And if you, he was writing an album of fads, that means. Yeah. And there was a, but it was fads that were important to him. Right. Which ultimately, at the end of the day, gives you that perspective. And, and you have to kind of put those shoes on to kind of really understand, which we factored in. Yeah. I, I Like I said, it's my mission to actually rescue certain little dead ends in music. Uh, that if, if they were fads to some people, I don't believe they should because I believe they offer more. So I respect his mission. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Respect the junk. Respect yeah, the exactly. Junk. All Put right. a flower on a garbage dump. That's a nice, uh, you know, exclamation point, I think, on this discussion. Why don't we get into our uh, spam mail of the week and then hear what John has for us next week. It's heartbreaking for me personally, for our staff, for the Bulldog Nation, I'm sure, and obviously for his family, Georgia coach Mark Richt said. I was crushed this morning when I heard it. Quite frankly, I haven't been able to keep it off my mind, to be honest with you. 
By who? Uh, that's by NFL Players Jersey. What? It sounds like it's referencing it. Like, it sounded human. No comment. But it was out of context. No I, comment. I, no comment. I don't know what he's talking He clearly, he was crushed. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. And I watch ESPN from time to time. It's not all the time. Georgia coach Mark Richt. He's had a meltdown, and he emailed yeah, us. I remember that. He yeah. emailed us. Well, an intermediary did, apparently. That's useless. Yeah. That's not information. Ne- next, tell you what. Next time, uh, Mark Richt, don't comment on on a thirty five B hazel honeysuckle. <laughs> it's not. It's not terribly helpful in terms of you know. We'll get back to you. We'll help you through whatever you got to deal with. We're nice. We're nice people. Right. We try to be. At this point, it's the first time I'm ever saying, "Okay, can we move on?" Yeah, can I we know. Move on. I'm not beating a dead horse. I <laughs> want to move on. <laughs> by talking about it I'm sort shut of up and okay. toss the what album what are we doing next week I was zooming around the internet and discovered something new that was experimental electronica and I went ooh and then I saw the really disturbing cover and I went ah and then I heard the name mutant and I went okay we're gonna have to do this it's by a musician a producer called Arca and he created something that I hope will promote a very interesting discussion because I already previewed it, and it was weird. Third Electronica album in a row. Thanks, yeah. Thanks well, a lot. we did we did the '80s. Now it's time to do something that is like the 2080s. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, it's from the I future. Praise, or something. I, guess. I don't know. Um, this guy did wait. some weird stuff. You'll see. All right. All well, right. on that shocker, uh, let's call it a night. Pack it in, and remember, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.